My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support in one of two ways. You can either write a brief review on iTunes, or you can simply become a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show is Professor Ada Palmer. Ada works on the history of science, religion, heresy, free thought, atheism, censorship, books, printing, and the networks of money and power that enable cultural production. She is also a science fiction author of the award-winning Terra Ignota series, beginning with Two Like the Lightning, which is a massive book I just finished a day or two ago, which explores a 25th century civilization of voluntary citizenship and borderless nations. Uh, I have invited Ada today for a very long and I believe also timely conversation on a variety of topics, uh, starting with perhaps pandemics, history, progress, science, teleology, ethics, artificial intelligence, and maybe even transhumanism, the future of humanity and philosophy. Who knows? So welcome to Singularity FM, Ada. Thank you. Sounds like a great list of topics. I'm sure we can cover them in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the benefit of having a Socratic style of a conversation is that hopefully we can enjoy the process wherever it takes us and we don't have to check any particular of those boxes, but simply kind of start the journey and see where we end up going. Perfect. So let me start, first of all, by asking you to introduce yourself. Who is Ada Palmer? If you meet someone who has never met you before, how do you introduce yourself? Well, it depends because I meet people under a lot of different hats. Uh, and so when I'm at a science fiction convention or hanging around with friends through gaming, I generally just introduce myself by saying that I study history or teach history or sometimes via being a science fiction author. And then people often get surprised to discover some of my other hats. Because there's also lots of people who know me through my music because I compose uh, polyphonic a cappella music, mostly Viking mythology set to music. Uh, and, and I'm also known in the anime Amongo world as an organizer of anime conventions and uh, as a scholar specializing in Osamu Tezuka's post-war Buddhist ethical work. Uh, wow. So lots of people know me through different, different spheres and it's fun when they overlap. That's fantastic. And you're a gamer too? Yes. What Mostly tabletop RPGs and cooperative board games. Wow. Uh, it's been a long time since we've put away our set of Spirit Island. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so if I were to ask you then, are you with all those many hats that you just listed, if I were to ask you, are you first and foremost a historian, a gamer, uh, a composer, a science fiction author, a philosopher maybe, then what would you say to me? I would say that I'm first and foremost somebody who looks at and studies how cultures change over time, especially over long periods of time, which I do as a historian looking at the long period of time, which is the past, and as a science fiction writer looking at the long period of time, which is the future. Uh, that many people think that being a historian and being a science fiction writer are almost opposites because you're looking at past and future, but there's nothing more similar to the future than the past. And it's the same excitement and to me the same project of using past and future to investigate how we understand the way 
civilizations, our civilization, other civilizations change over time. Wow, this is an interesting thought. Let, let me just ask you to repeat it. There's nothing more similar to the past than the future, is that correct? Indeed, and there's nothing more similar to the future than the past. It's a long period of time during which civilization has developed and changed and undergone turmoils and then developed new ideas about itself from those turmoils and then had new turmoils result from those new ideas. Studying history is the best possible preparation, I think, for writing science fiction. Uh, because you need to think quest about questions like how does the new technology affect education, affect economic change, affect people's identities, affect the structure of a family, uh, all of these kinds of questions that you learn to ask as a historian um, and that you then get more fruitful and richer world building when you ask those of the future as well. So perhaps this is a good point to jump into one thing that maybe is similar to several parts of, of our world history, and that's the current ongoing COVID-19 global pandemic that we're all living through right now. So can you tell us perhaps what, if anything, can historical pandemic teach us about dealing with COVID-19 today? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been asking about the Black Death in particular, and because my main historical period is the Renaissance, a lot of people ask the question, did the Black Death cause the Renaissance? And if so, will COVID cause a golden age? And I'm actually working on a book-length answer to that question. Not, because anyway, the answer is no, but the real answer is there are a bunch of different problems underlying even asking the question that you need to ask to get at what is the Renaissance really? What is the Middle Ages really? Um, but looking at the Black Death, as I do not as a medievalist, because this is a medieval moment, you know, 1348, I study the Black Death after we think of it as having left. Uh, because the way we talk about the Black Death in textbooks, 1348, the Black Death rolls into Europe, a third of the people die, and then it's over. And in 1349, life goes on and we begin having Raphael's basically. Uh, not quite, but the Black Death doesn't leave. It does do its massive sweep in 1348 to 1349. It doesn't leave Europe. It stays endemic in Europe. It comes back year after year, normally as an everyday part of life, like chickenpox or like flu season for us, except far deadlier. And it does this in different cities in Europe every year for 300 years. It doesn't stop until the 18th century. Um, and in the Middle East, it's still going into the 19th century. The only thing that actually eventually makes the Black Death go away is that Europeans get it so consistently, the Europeans evolve resistance. The people who survive to reproduce are the people who have heightened immunoresponse and have a higher likelihood of surviving it if they get it. And eventually you get to the state which Europeans are now, where most Europeans, if you get the Black Death, it's like a minor cold, you move on, it's okay. Um, it's the populations that weren't in Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, East Asia, that still die of it regularly, right? And there are over a thousand deaths from this disease every year now. Um, it's still a major disease globally. It just left Europe gradually through one of the few really traceable evolutions that humanity has undergone. But even that isn't a positive story in a way, because there's a lot of new research which suggests, and here I'm gonna flub the name of the scientist but I can email you afterward. Um, Europe, people of European descent have a heightened instance of autoimmune conditions and inflammatory 
problems. And we're now thinking that's because of the adaptation to resist the Black Death. Europeans increased their immune inflammatory response. And so the Black Death is still killing us backwards through having forced European DNA to adapt to be worse in other ways to make us vulnerable to autoimmune conditions as the price of becoming resistant to the Black Death, very much like how sickle cell anemia is a consequence of an adaptation for malarial resistance in areas where malaria is endemic. Um, so I think about that when I hear people talk about, can we deal with COVID through herd immunity? It's like, no, that takes, that takes hundreds of years. You don't want that. You don't want this to be an endemic problem, but we're not worried about it being an endemic problem. That's an interesting cultural thing to notice. We're confident we will come up with a vaccine. Now, we don't know how long it'll take. We don't know whether we're talking a year or a couple of years or in an incredibly fortunate scenario, less than a year, but probably a year or a couple of years. But none of us right now is worried that our grandchildren are going to be frequently quarantined like this because of this virus, maybe other viruses, but not this one. And that's a mark of the technological space between us and past pandemics, not just between us and the Black Death, but even between us and uh, 1918, right? Uh, one of the things that I keep uh, being moved, deeply moved by, are our discussions about how do we adapt the upcoming fall U.S. election to be safer with the pandemic? Because in 1918, they didn't have that conversation. It was an election year, and they just held the election because there was nothing they could do. They didn't understand enough about how a pandemic worked, but they couldn't have discussions about how do we sterilize voting booths? Do we put them a certain distance apart? Do we prolong the voting period? There wasn't enough knowledge to do anything. This is the first pandemic any species on this planet has ever encountered while we understood how a pandemic worked and could do anything. And while we're absolutely right to be criticizing the things that are being done badly, as a historian who's used to looking at 1348 and 1918 and uh, 1495 and just many, 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 many other epidemics that have wiped out cities, I'm thrilled to watch us be the first moment in which a species on Earth has understood a pandemic, acted upon a pandemic, and modified and mitigated the effects of a pandemic. So do you think that our response to COVID-19 has been sort of like proportional, um, maybe perhaps with respect to the fact that, uh, my understanding is that during the Great Plague, 20, in some communities up to maybe 50% of the population was wiped out. Uh, and today we don't quite yet know the numbers, but it's somewhere between one in a hundred and one in a thousand. Uh, I mean, we don't know because we don't know if this is going to do the what the 1918 influenza did where there was a wave and then a bigger wave and then a third wave. It could do that. Right. And 1918 wiped out maybe 50 million people, I think. Yeah. Um, and we're talking just for, for the benefit of our listeners. I think it was the swine flu, right? 1918, the swine flu. People have different names for it. Many of the names for it are problematic because lots of people tried to racialize it and blame it on Spain. So it's often called Spanish influenza, but it didn't originate in Spain. It's just a propagandistic term. So actually, you know, we're as historians kind of debating what's the best way to refer to it. That's why I say the 1918 influenza, because that's clear and neutral. 
I see, because naming things is very, very powerful. So Right. Even calling it swine flu, then you're associating it with agriculture and with a particular social class and with different cultures that do or don't keep pigs and so on. Uh, right. 1918, we know what 1918 is. And while there are, you know, the calendar itself is a political document as well. Uh, it's about as close as we can get to something that doesn't connect the disease to any particular class, culture, activity, group, etc. So so then, again, be, going back to the question, uh, uh, has that the factor of fear today towards COVID-19 been comparable to the fear exhibit or experienced in 1918 or the the sort of like the, I don't know, the shock effect or the, 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 the social impact of the idea of, of the virus and things like that? How's that compared, whether, you know, in the 14th century or, or the 19th century? Or the I would say that fear is a huge component of both, but that the fear is operating very differently. Um, I think Right now, everybody is feeling the way in which fear is a kind of exhaustion. It's harder to concentrate. It's harder to do things. Things that feel like they should be an easy task are taking two days instead of one. Uh, the way I've been putting it when I talk with students who are frustrated themselves because their dissertations are going slowly is no one on earth is operating at 100% right now. We're all operating at 75% at best because of the fear and the anxiety. In 1348, Governments shut down, right? There were initial government efforts to deal with things. When the plague arrives in Florence, the, the government takes immediate action. Its immediate action is let's um, double the penalty for selling meat of male and female animals out of the same meat booth. Because if you get male and female blood mixed on each other and then eat it, it might be what's making people sick. This is how little they understand. That, right? This is not going to do anything for anyone. Um, but they do take immediate action. But as it advances over the weeks, the government just actually vanishes. Uh, it stops operating. One of the things that causes extended loss of life after the plague is nobody's feeding the animals and the animals all die. And a huge chunk of the food source vanishes just because there wasn't a human being there to bring the feed to the chickens anymore or to let the sheep out of the pen into the next pen. Uh, it actually all breaks down, and we are watching our essential supply chains largely function. And we're having discussions over pressure points, pressure points like meat packing industry, which is one of the current pressure points, or mask production, which is one of the current pressure points. Right. But electricity is flowing, water is flowing. Governments are there answering our questions, giving dumb answers sometimes, but less dumb than let's <laughs> increase the penalty on meat from male to female animals the same booth, which isn't even based on, on the late, the remotest understanding of what pathogen is, because there's no pathogen concept for you. So, so what, are, what are the major lessons, perhaps, that we can take from those previous pandemics and maybe keep, you know, at the back of our minds or maybe even apply straightforward to our current predicament? So one of them that I find really helpful in terms of thinking about what's likely to happen, because people are always asking, is, is the economy going to get better, get worse? Not on the this year timeframe, but on the 10-year timeframe. And there's a lot of invocations of the Black Death for that. Some people saying late wages will go up because we have these old studies 
that showed that wages did spike after the Black Death, right? There's a severe labor shortage. Laborers can now demand much higher wages. People can start traveling to different places where there's need for labor and then get higher wages. And this sort of empowers a generational shift. Those studies, we have since done other studies and determined that that only actually happened in the couple of places where those studies were done. And doing more studies in other places show that sometimes no such effect, sometimes the opposite, that there was an enormous different range of economic consequences. And while some areas did see wages spike, other areas saw governments crack down on the independence of labor and the first laws that will create workhouses and poor houses and debt-based forms of unfreedom and exploitative labor also result from the Black Death and from people's efforts to control labor in a moment when labor is newly precious. So we're going to see an enormous range of what different policies different countries put in after this, just as there was an enormous range of different after effects Black Death. And we're going to see the economy, I think, neither blossom nor shrivel, but change, uh, for which the example that I love coming back to is the Vikings in Greenland. The Vikings where? In Greenland. Oh. So there was a tiny colony of Vikings in Greenland. They'd been there since the 1200s. They were farmers, and their main economic output was walrus hunting. And they would export walrus ivory and walrus hide to other parts of Europe. And ships who wanted that because it was a high-end luxury good that could trade for high prices would go to Greenland to get that and bring the Greenland Vikings goods that they couldn't produce, like wheat, uh, which couldn't couldn't grow in the short growing season there. Um, And for a long time, we've been trying to figure out why was it that shortly after 1410, the Greenland Vikings vanished civilization there went away after being stable for 200 years. We've had a lot of different theories, but the more we look at it recently, the more we've realized it was the Black Death, probably, which they didn't get. The disease never got to Greenland. They didn't have it. But the bottom fell out of the walrus ivory market because of economic shifts that happened, right? We're talking about 1410, which is 60 years after the Black Death. The economy had changed shape. People weren't buying walrus ivory anymore. Those ships weren't coming to do that trade that had been the backbone of why you'd bother to live in Greenland. It's a very difficult place to live. And on the other hand, there was now a high demand for farm labor and lots of available farmland back in Europe in the area that these people ancestors had left because there hadn't been space. They're mostly ancestors who were kicked out in feuds, right? So this is a people who didn't lose a single person to the Black Death but they saw their entire world change because one industry died out and a different industry developed and absorbed the later. And we believe many of them emigrated back to Europe and that the last of them were not sure and we're still working on it. But we're going to see some sectors of the economy shrink away and other sectors of the economy grow. We're going to see the kinds of sociological growing pains that you always have when that happens. When, when that means a particular person's life, a particular family, a particular town is disrupted and you get, whether it's an empty colony in Greenland or the emptying out of Flint, Michigan, emptying out at the same point that you get golden ages in San Francisco and a golden age maybe in Florence or Naples that is happening at the same time because not an absolute, the economy is better or the economy is worse, but the economy has changed. Mm-hmm. And some people benefit from that while some don't. Right. And some people both suffer and benefit because the, the Greenland Vikings suffer in Greenland, but then 
have good homesteads and probably a better standard of living back in Europe, but have to undergo the great hardship of the emigration and the migration, which is a great difficulty with a reward at the end. All of this is to say, the more robust our post-pandemic infrastructure to allow people to move, uh, to change jobs, to change industries, and to migrate from places where work is disappearing to places where work is appearing, the better we are at that the better the economy will thrive because it will mean that instead of people withering out of the economy, people will transition to a new space where they're part of it, they get a good life. The other so is the major lesson then economic one? No, there are lots. Uh, <laughs> you can do Black Death for hours, which is why it's a book-length answer that I'm working on. Well, let me let me refocus you then a little bit here because next week I'm doing an interview with Carl Schroeder on strange-making strange oh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And the idea of strange making, and we're going to go uh, in depth uh, next week with Carl on that, is basically that when something breaks, is the first time when you see the other possibility of the other possibilities of of using this thing for something else than the original intended purpose. Right. Uh, and what's key for Carl is that. Uh, while we have limited possibilities, within that range of limited possibilities, we have infinite possibilities. And and so we're going to be talking about how COVID-19 may give us new possibilities for new things, perhaps. And that brings me back to your, the original thing that you shared with us, whether the Great Plague caused the Renaissance or not. And you said it's right. a book long answer so it was it was a no but it's a still a book long answer so what if you can shrink it down a little bit what may be the potential upsides or uh the potential for a new renaissance post covid 19 and what can we learn from the original renaissance after the black death that maybe we can look towards or shift or steer towards today because Half the reason the answer is so long is to answer the question, did the Black Death cause the Renaissance and then, therefore, will COVID cause a golden age? Requires addressing the question of whether the Renaissance is a golden age. Yeah. And the answer is mostly no, or rather a golden age is something much more complicated than people realize, particularly because there are two different things that we tend to imagine in a golden age. One of them is that the produce of that age is great that it's producing masterpieces and inventions and it has geniuses and there's a lot of technological progress and artistic progress and literary masterpieces and that it's going to be an age that future generations you know, go to museums or visit Florence or visit Venice and we're awed by how beautiful it is. And that's true. But the other association we have with the golden age is that it's a good time to live that it's good to live through, that the people there are happy, have a decent standard of living, have a different, decent lifespan, and that the transition from not a golden age to a golden age, from the Middle Ages, for example, to the Renaissance, ought to be marked by an increase in standard of living and an increase in perhaps peace or stability, which is absolutely false for Renaissance and medieval. The life expectancy plummets uh, from a medieval average of about 35 in Italy and and nearby areas to the terrifying Renaissance average, which is 18 
uh, in Renaissance studies, average life expectancy. And yeah, it's incredibly low. So, so let me let me repeat this: in Renaissance Italy and thereabouts, the average life expectancy plunged in half from thirty-five to eighteen. And most of those deaths are between the ages of three and twelve. Infant mortality stayed about the same. Um, what we're losing is a lot of people in that lower area, and then also men and not women, we'll get to that in a second, uh, in the rest of life. Um, so that when you're looking at the top 10% of people who live longest, with the exception of Titian and uh, Cardinal da Costa of Portugal, it's like 100% women of the people who are the longest lived in this era. Um, it's 100% widows and nuns. Uh, what's happening? Progress. Progress means after the Black Death, economies are shifting, trade is increasing. Starting earlier in 1100, there'd been innovations in banking and insurance. In the 1400s, we get the blossoming of the giant banks like the Medici Bank and the Strozzi Bank. We're now getting an interconnected Europe where instead of people in England uh, growing wool and then spinning their wool into itchy, bad quality wool, they're exporting their wool to the Mediterranean where there's ample oil, which is cheap and easy to grow, olives down there. And when you have lots of oil, you can instead weave wool into very fine, non-itchy wool thread and make very high quality, non-itchy wool cloth and then re-export it to England. Because England can't produce oil because it's only oil crop, it's walnuts, which isn't very space efficient because it doesn't yet have what will eventually come to be canola. Um, so the, the economy is becoming more interconnected. People are getting richer as a result. We're suddenly getting these masterfully rich banking families that are richer than anyone's been since Crosses of Rome, at least within the European experience. They're still not as rich as China or Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, as a result, trade is moving more, so diseases are moving faster. Uh, not only the Black Death, but the pox gets deadlier and malaria moves more quickly and dysentery is moving more quickly. The deadliness of the cities is going up Governments are getting richer, they're getting more centralized, they're getting stronger states, better able to exert taxes, which means they have more money, they can hire larger armies, they can equip their armies better with new high quality military stuff, better steel cannons, we have larger, deadlier wars. When armies go to battle, they can knock the city gates in more effectively. We don't have more wars by total number of wars, but we have more casualties per war as the technology gets better and things are able to get deadlier, cities get denser, wealth increases mean that powerful families can hire more goons, you have faction fighting and feuding like the Montagues and Capulets, that's claiming more lives. So all of this increase in deadliness is actually a side effect of progress, technological, economic, government, uh, and sort of infrastructural progress are all enabling more circulation of people and therefore more efficacious violence and all of this other stuff, which is what's claiming the lives of men more than women uh, and of kids that have passed infancy but are going out in the streets and playing where the dysentery or the pox are circulating more often. So if I were to just highlight a couple of things for interesting facts, I think is that, first of all, uh, life expectancy dropped in half from 35 to 18. But secondly, and you just mentioned that in passing, um, the idea is that, you know, re Renaissance Europe and especially, you know, the Italian city-states were like the best place in the world. And yet, as you mentioned, places such as China, India, Sub-Saharan Africa had actually enjoyed much 
a higher standard of, of living. Higher standards of living, more wealth, more advanced technology, you name it, it's better outside of Europe. Uh, Europe is the strangely technologically backwards and, and financially backwards uh, part of it, which is one of the things that historians are working on correcting. As historians know this, but the old propagandistic narrative of Europe is civilized and then exports its civilization everywhere else. Uh, you know, people in the Renaissance didn't think that. There's a great recent book about the history of the discipline of anthropology. The title is Savages, Romans, and Despots. Uh, I can't remember the author's name, but it's actually a history of how Europe got from perfectly well knowing that it was the least advanced culture to this propagandistic message that Europe tells itself that it's the civilizer of the rest. And that change really does. The cradle of civilization. And this, this happens between 1500 and 1800. It's an actually quite rapid internal propagandistic process. Uh, whereas when you're back in the Renaissance, people in the Renaissance know perfectly well that the wealth is to the East. Even Vikings know this. Uh, in Snorri Sturluson's Edda, right, uh, he talks about the, the directions on a map. And if you go north, it gets colder and colder forever until the world is just ice. And if you go south, it gets hotter and hotter forever until the world is just fire. And if you go west, there's nothing but water forever and ever. And if you go east, people get richer and richer until the world is made of gold. Those are the four directions if you're a Viking. They know that wealth, silk, gold, treasure, all of this stuff is coming from the east. And even as the Renaissance is developing its great civilizational projects, library building especially, which is not a small undertaking in the manuscript period. After printing comes in, so after 1450 and mainly in the 1500s, any fairly rich person can develop a library. But before that, in the manuscript period, a single manuscript book costs as much as a house. Uh, and a, a small pocket paperback costs as much as a condo, a small condo, and a great big bejeweled Bible costs as much as putting a mansion together. Uh, so a library means you've invested millions in this, the equivalent of buying a house or being able to buy a house per book you have on the shelf. So when you say in 1300, the great library of the University of Paris had 600 books, <laughs> right? And there's no kiosk in an airport on earth right now that doesn't have more than 600 books in it. But that was a monumental achievement. And in the Renaissance, they start pushing even more toward book collecting. and and different cities and monarchs are competing to have the greatest book collections. And it's a big deal when Niccolo Niccoli has over a thousand books. And it's a big deal when King, the King of Hungary, Matthias Corvinus, has over a thousand books. And the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid had 5,000 books. And just as a perfectly normal thing to have because the East is that wealthy. Uh, and that level of learning and libraries on that scale are new and exciting in Europe in a way that they aren't elsewhere. Uh, Europeans know this in the 1500s and in the 1600s, but it's in the 1800s and 1900s, while Europe is justifying to itself its colonial projects, that it re-narrativizes this to make itself retroactively be the civilization. So it would appear that you would largely agree with uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who says that uh, the agrarian revolution is history's greatest fraud. And likewise, perhaps you could put an argument that uh, either the Renaissance or maybe the Industrial Revolution both would 
kind of fall under that hat because the PR, the marketing, the, the image associated of, with them is like this great phenomenal period of great progress, of great scientific, geographical, and other kind of accomplishments. Uh, whereas the reality is, as you as you said, life expectancy dropping from 35 to 18, which is quite shocking. And people had probably, as uh, Thomas Hobbes said, life that was nasty, brutish, and short. That's, yes, the, the Renaissance is very Hobbesian, but it still did do the great stuff, right? It did make all the things that we admire and discover all the stuff that we admire. I was trying to think today about if I needed to represent the Renaissance in one object, what would it be? And there's a there's a little trolley cart kiosk booth in Florence in front of the Palazzo Vecchio, the old seat of government, where you can buy a little plastic model of different stuff from, from the Renaissance, of, of the palace itself, of Michelangelo's David, and also of Cellini's um, Perseus, which is the Perseus holding the severed head of Medusa. And you can buy them regular or covered with glitter. When they're covered with glitter, it's hideous because it covers up all the detail in the, in the sculpture with this sort of glop. And you just get this sort of sparkly gold glop over the vague shape of a thing. And, and if you scrape off that glove, the figure underneath is actually gorgeous. In the case of both the David and the Perseus, it's violent, right? Michelangelo's David is somebody who's about to kill a guy <laughs> in a duel. Uh, Cellini's Perseus is somebody who just did <laughs> uh, and is holding her severed head up for us to admire the gore dropping down uh, out of her neck. And she can turn us all into stone if we look at her. Yeah, there is a real amazing, beautiful, exciting renaissance under the glitter. But we have to scrape the glitter off and get to it. And what we find under the glitter isn't what we imagine when we think golden age because it's violent and it's challenging and it's hard to live with. But it's also inspiring and full of genius because despite that, right, with an average a life expectancy of 18, they do all this stuff. Uh, and the more I read about how terrible it is, about how many plagues each one of these people survives, the more impressed I am that they then do manage to live to write encyclopedias and translate Plato and Homer. And the people who are doing this have lived through massacres and have fled their homes during plague uh, and have, you know... I, Poliziano, who's the poet, who's the first person to translate Homer uh, into beautiful verse, right? You know how when you're in the first couple of years of learning a language and you translate a passage and it comes out with the literal meaning of the thing, but it's sort of garbled right. and, and I, Latin teacher friends of mine call it translationese, right? It's not, not English yet, it's translationese. Um, Earlier translations of Homer were like that. It, it was the literal syntactic sense without beauty. He's the first person to render beautiful Homer. Um, you know, he learned Greek in the first place because his father was brutally murdered for supporting the Medici. So the Medici, to make up for it, paid for the education of his son uh, and supported it. Uh, and he also nearly died leaping between an assassin and Lorenzo de' Medici at one point and was then murdered later. But nonetheless, he produced the Homer and the other amazing scholarship that is gorgeous. So we, 
we shouldn't look at the Renaissance and imagine that it's a wonderful era that we wish we could live in. We should look at the Renaissance and say, wow, this was a terrible era, and yet they did all this. There's a letter that a friend of Machiavelli wrote to Machiavelli that I just love, uh, 1506. Um, and Machiavelli had been writing a history of that previous decade, the 10 years leading to that moment. Uh, and the friend had read it and wrote to Machiavelli and said, Machiavelli, please continue your history. We need a good history of this era because without one, future generations will never believe how bad it was. And they will never forgive us for losing so much so quickly. That is the decade in which the Mona Lisa was painted and the David was carved. And that's what it felt like living through it. We need to study that. And I think if we do study that and scrape the glitter off of it and get to the thing underneath that is terrible and also great, we can also feel better about our own era, which has many terrible things in it and many things that we look at and say, this is awful. This is definitely not a golden age, yet we're producing really excellent stuff. I think we're already more similar to the Renaissance than we realize. Because what is the Renaissance? It's an era when everyone knows there is a crisis, when everyone feels we're on the verge of apocalypse, when things are very not okay. And so everyone works to produce as much art, as much innovation, as much technology, as much change as they can. Because without a desperate measure, you're not going to make it through the desperate time. Okay, so, so does that mean then that today we are kind of in a similarly, similarly breakthrough, radical, revolutionary period that's kind of stuck between two epochs, perhaps? Um, At the maybe. precipice of a new age. Of, of the old going away and the new rushing in or something. I mean, I, no, no age hasn't been that. No age hasn't been that. And that's true of the different parts of the Middle Ages relative to each other as well. Uh, and that's where we get into the, the glitter part of the Renaissance, which is to say, in addition to scraping the glitter off and studying the statue underneath, it's also useful to look at the glitter to learn how it got there. Uh, and there are two sources of that glitter <laughs> that covers the Renaissance. One is the Renaissance itself. Uh, the Renaissance invented the Middle Ages, right? Uh, Petrarch a little bit, and then Leonardo Bruni, we're talking about the early 1400s at that point, were the first people to divide history into three parts. And Bruni said there was the ancient world, which was good, the Middle Ages, which was bad, and now our era, which will become a new golden age. At that point, it's sort of aspirational. We're going to revive all this stuff. We're not quite doing it yet. But look, I'm writing an elaborate history in Latin, the way Tacitus did. This is the beginning of a golden age. Uh, and the Renaissance keeps declaring itself to be a golden age and trying to become a golden age because everybody feels like they're living through an apocalypse. <laughs> and so trying to solve that by making a golden age and having a golden age and being a golden age is the hope that people need. Um, and there are a bunch of different things that, that result in that getting a lot of support. You know, Petrarch at the beginning of it says Italy is dying and is going to die unless we become the Romans, which we can do by studying their technology, getting back to our educational system, transforming ourselves into Romans by reviving their arts and making a golden age. So the Renaissance tries to make a golden age. It then debates with itself. Are we actually a golden age? We're a golden age, but you're not. You're a golden age, but we're not. You, know, you used to be a golden age, but now we, we aren't. The Renaissance is long, remember. We're talking about a period so long that Machiavelli is as far or is it she? From, I did calculations recently, as is far from Petrarch 
as we are from like just after the Civil War, right? It's a long, the U.S. Civil War, it's a long mm-hmm. period. Um, and that's only halfway through the Renaissance because we have to get all the way through and past Shakespeare and into, into uh, Hobbes and Bacon before we're out of Renaissance. It's a, lo- a long enough era to debate with itself. Are we a golden age? Was this earlier part a golden age? Or is this not, et cetera, et cetera. So that's half of where the glitter comes from. The other half of the glitter is a 19th and 20th century phenomenon. Right. Uh, and that comes with the interest in the term modernity and the question of modernity, which comes in as a fashionable thing to talk about in the mid-19th century. Uh, Jakob Burkhardt is often pointed at with this, but there are a lot of people. And the question is, what defines modernity? And one proposal that's made is that the Renaissance, which you know everyone had been going on the grand tour and collecting reproductions of Renaissance art, and everyone knows about the Mona Lisa, the Renaissance, this golden age, uh, was created was the beginning of modernity, and and was sparked by X and different people propose a different X, uh, but the idea that the 19th century developed is that the Renaissance began with the arrival of X, and that began moving on from the stagnant, terrible, unchanging, sleepy Middle Ages, and that's the moment at which things start moving and changing, and we get an arc forward up toward us. Now, the real Middle Ages weren't stagnant or sleepy. They were actually changing a lot. There's a huge difference between 600 and 900 and 1200. But this is the 19th century interpretation of the Renaissance idea. And the reason that it's so powerful and potent is depending on what X is, you can use this to support your own political position in the modern world. So one way to say it is, you know, the Renaissance began in Florence and Venice the republics. So what made the Renaissance great was the beginning of democracy. And therefore, it's democracy that is the hallmark of modernity and began the climb up out of the Middle Ages. And therefore, democracy is the most important thing about modernity and the thing that makes all the great parts of modernity great. Therefore, you should, you know, support the forced democratization of other countries, etc. Or it can be, ah, it was banking. It was finance. It was the beginning of the merchant bankers who ran things in Florence. So it's capitalism. Boy, do you get this argument in the Cold War, right? It's <laughs> capitalism that created the Renaissance and launched us into modernity. Look at all of this information we have about the economy of Renaissance Florence. That sure proves that our side is right in the Cold War. Uh, you also get arguments that it's uh, individualism. Uh, the, you know, the center of the individual as, a, as an isolated person, not for their family or tied to other things, but trying to self-fashion, you know, that's what launches us. You also get uh, secularization or atheism, that it's the breakaway from the church and the beginning of sort of free thought and, and questioning that, that launches things into modernity. And so the 19th and 20th centuries found the myth of the Renaissance Golden Age incredibly politically useful to then justify different political movements as being the heart of what makes modernity. Nationalism is another one, big in the 19th century, that that Petrarch or other or, or Machiavelli or other early figures were the first one to articulate the values of nationalism and the importance of independence and you know fighting against foreign invaders and, and that that was the beginning of modernity and modernity is defined by nationalism. So a lot of the glitter glowing our statue is the how useful the myth of a golden age is and therefore why people invoke it over and over whether it's a politician in a speech or a historian in a history or you know a bank logo 
that uses a Renaissance-looking image and a Renaissance-looking font to invoke Golden Age. Golden Ages are really, really powerful, persuasive tools. And that's why it's been so hard to scrape the glitter off, because the glitter is so useful to make Let's money. Make America Great Again is a call towards going back to our gold, or your Golden Age. Right, or a Golden Age, you know, defining different Golden Ages differently. Right. Uh, and there are a bunch of different bits of history that get used as Golden Ages. You know, ancient Rome is one, or ancient Greece is one. Uh, imagined sort of pastoral antiquity is another. Ancient China is using it too. Now there's lots of movies yeah. and propaganda yeah, on that, and they, especially the, the period Japan, uniting the kingdoms. Yeah, mm -hmm. Japan did with Nippon and like the the Meiji Restoration, and like especially going into the World Wars. It was all about that kind of mass yeah. propaganda. Yeah. So the Renaissance isn't is far from the only period that gets used as a golden age. But it's one of the ones that's most absolutely defined by being used as a golden age. We almost never discuss about it in any other way, except as a golden age. That's what even the word Renaissance implies. So, so let me connect these couple of things here, and then we're going to move on to the next point. But, but uh, perhaps last touch on here was like going back to COVID nineteen. It looks like you agree with my claim that basically any anyone who wants to do anything within the context of COVID-19 would basically reach back towards their bag of ideas and mm -hmm. use COVID-19 to justify whatever they had available to begin with, right. uh, whatever their political, religious, uh, scientific or anti-scientific or other sort of like ideology was to begin with. But but going back to the Renaissance and the high mortality rate and the wars and all of that, and combining it with that idea I just mentioned, do you not see any kind of commonality? And are you not con concerned that America may be kind of getting closer and closer towards this kind of lawlessness or civil war or civil armed conflict that was kind of daily routine, if you will, for Italy all throughout the Renaissance or mostly throughout the Renaissance, which is, of course, like, you know, Leonardo was employed to create weapons and, and all those things. And, and we had the papal army and the French and, you know, the city states and, and the private armies of this and that person and basically constant war. Yeah. Even during peace, even during supposed peace. This morning I was writing a, a discussion of the Peace of Lodi, which is a 40-year period called the Peace of Lodi, which lasts from the middle of the 1400s to almost the end of the 1400s, during which there have been at least 17 wars. And uh, you have assassins and you have, you know, yeah. uh, poison and you have yeah. all kinds And you kinds really do. Uh, but, you know, no, I don't worry about that. And I don't worry about it for two very different reasons. One is, I don't think it's useful to look at Stuff changes way faster than that now. Uh, the rate of historical change has increased over time. The rate at which our world changes is much faster than the rate at which the Renaissance world changed, which is in turn a little faster than the rate at which the medieval world changed. So I think that the primary cause of that is information tech, that the faster information can move the more quickly cultures can then change and have a new idea take fire. 
every time a new information technology comes in and disseminates, you get an increase in how quickly and how widespread stuff is, uh, change is, right? So that even in the earlier 1400s, if you had a firebrand reformer who demands the reform of the church and all the things that Martin Luther is going to demand, that might take on momentum in a city and the towns around it, and that's it. But by 1517, when Luther publishes the 95 Theses, they're in print in London 17 days after he makes them public. Because there were not only printing presses, but a distribution network where there were professionals whose job it is to get the interesting news, get on a horse, go as fast as you can to the port and send that on to other print capitals. There was both a tech, which had come in in 1450, and the, the uh, distribution mechanism, which had come in considerably later. And so, so the Reformation has the same ideas that other people had been saying for decades about the problems with how corrupt the church had gotten but it's able to explode because of information technology. And things then move faster as there are more printing presses and as the infrastructure for circulating printed material goes faster, which is a huge part of why the enlightenment can happen as it does. And then we get telegraph and then we get radio and then we get television and then we get digital media. And each of these changes makes the speed at which things shift go faster. So that we go, in my opinion, in a couple of years through an amount of change that Renaissance people go in decades. But does that create more or less conflict? More or less violence? I think it's about the same amount of violence per capita in a lot of ways, probably less violence per capita. Um, but not because of the infotech. The less violence per capita, I think, is because of the Enlightenment. There were a lot of problems with the Enlightenment, but it sure made a lot of positive changes, not necessarily in what we have attained, but in what we aspire to. So, for example, our justice system isn't fair, right? And there are a lot of very important inequalities in it that people are pointing out that are around race and around class and around entrenching elites. We know that it, we talk about the fact that it isn't fair. We have a sense of what a fair justice system should look like. We aspire to have it be fair, or people who don't aspire to have it be fair are aware that this is a dialogue and thinking of it as unfair, right? The justice system in 1500 is, if you're friends with the people in power, there are no consequences for your crime. Uh, and Cellini, who did that statue of Perseus, right, holding the severed head, in his autobiography, he boasts about how cleverly he would wait until he had a job from the Pope or the Duke or the King and then murder people, knowing that the Duke, his boss will make sure that he gets off with no penalty because his boss wants the art that he promised and isn't going to let a murder get in the way of his art. And that's just how the justice system works. The justice system is if you have friends in high places, there are no consequences for your crime. If you don't, if you've angered the people in high places, then they'll throw the book at you and you'll suffer the full ferocious penalty of the law. That's just what justice is. The fact that we underwent the Enlightenment and switched to aspire to equality, to aspire to justice falling equally for every crime, to aspire to equality among women and men, among all, all these different things. We didn't used to value that. There was a great conversation about this exact question a couple of years ago at a conference, and it was two friends, both of whom are Renaissance scholars, who were talking about the question of Machiavelli 
is Machiavelli fundamentally a modern person or a pre-modern person? And the one who was arguing that Machiavelli is a modern person was saying, it's not true that he's defined by how much violence there is in Florence. There are as many murders in Chicago every year as there are in Florence. The answer is yes, but Florence had a population of 100,000 and Chicago has a population of several million. It's still way fewer murders per human being. But the even more important difference, and this is what Chris Chalenza, the friend who was there, pointed out, we think those murders in Chicago are a problem. We aspire to fix that. We investigate the cause. We urge our government to take action in that direction. We criticize our government when it doesn't. As opposed to the Renaissance attitude of, yes, murder is normal in the world, we'll just always have murder. Um, we've developed a lot of social infrastructure for reducing violence in the Enlightenment. And no matter how acute our tensions right now, no matter the comparisons, the very valid comparisons we make about how the wealth gap is worse now than ever, I don't think that infrastructure is going to fail us that much. I think the tools of checks and balances and peaceful resolution that we have now are so much more robust than in the Renaissance that they will help. They won't be perfect. They won't mean there's no violence ever. But we have so many robust new intellectual and governmental infrastructures for resolving problems in nonviolent ways. Even if some of those fail, we still have the rest of them. Well, I sure hope you're correct. Uh, but I'm still a little concerned myself. I mean, we should be. Even if you're only a tenth as bad as the Renaissance, it's still pretty bad. <laughs> let, me, let me take us here to our next point of, of conversation, which is very related to all of those things that we've discussed until now, and that's the idea of progress. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the invention of the concept of progress, because that would be news to many of our listeners. Yeah. Uh, why, uh, how did it come to be? Why was it such a novelty when it did come to be invented? And are we really making progress? So let's talk about its birth, its definition, and a trajectory towards more or less progress. Yeah. Uh, so you're referring to an essay of mine on my blog on progress and historical change. Uh, it's a great essay. And it talks about... I love about... it. I recommend everyone should go to your website and read it. I'll put a link to it. Perfect. Um, it talks about how in basically 1600, Francis Bacon invented progress, which is a kind of a baffling statement, which is why it takes a lot of unpacking. Uh, but a key word here is anthropogenic progress, right? We talk about anthropogenic climate change, climate change caused by people. So anthropogenic progress, the idea that progress is caused by human action. Because before that point, for the most part, and I'll talk about the Renaissance in a moment, the understanding is that history changes and stuff happens because of probably a providential divine plan in Western Christian thinking, uh, and because nature sometimes throws into the works heroes and villains. There'll be a great king who'll found a great kingdom, and then there'll be a terrible king and the kingdom will fall. There'll be a conqueror or something. That it is uh, people that make the shifts happen, but that fundamentally it's sort of rises and falls and the overall state of things is about the same. And Rome might be a golden age compared to wherever you, your perspective is from, uh, but fundamentally bread will always be bread. And 
a house will always be a house. And when you look at paintings of the Virgin Mary and the Last Supper, the bread looks like the bread of the person who painted that painting. And the dishes look like the dishes of the person who painted that painting because bread will always be bread and a plow will always be a plow. And when you buy a new cauldron, your great-grandchildren might still be using that cauldron. If they're not, they'll have melted down the metal and made a new identical cauldron by taking it back to the blacksmith. The fundamentals of life are going to be the same, and then things will rise or fall, caused by whether it's providential design or a great king coming or a virtuous king leading thing or a saint or something. Um, in 1600, Francis Bacon has the idea that it's actually possible to learn scientific knowledge, you know, the secrets of how the world works, and use them to develop technologies which will then fundamentally make each generation's experience better than the earlier generation's experience. Example here being refrigeration. You know, can we experiment with more efficient ways to store meat in refrigerated circumstances over winter so that food will last longer and people will starve less? Uh, he actually dies from a cold he caught experimenting with freezing meat. Bacon um, did. So, and, and the way he articulates this in his writings is if we can do this, if a team of scientists works together to develop these technologies, then every generation's experience can be slightly better than the previous generation's experience. He thinks this has never happened before. He thinks this is a new proposal. And the people reading it believe that it's a new proposal, that he's proposing, let's repurpose what study is for. He has this wonderful metaphor of three insects, although we think a spider isn't an insect, but for him it's an insect. That uh, there are three kinds of scholar. There's an ant who gathers lots and lots and lots of information, puts it in a big pile and makes a tall anthill. And then whoever's the biggest pile of information wins. And he doesn't organize it and he doesn't do anything with it. He's just piled it up. I have all the information. And the second kind of scholar is a spider who spins elaborate webs of theory and you know, sort of castles in the sky of how things work. And you get absolutely entranced by the beauty and complexity of it. But it really is just sort of theory that has no application or relation to anything other than the stuff of the spider's own body. Uh, and Bacon says what we need instead is to become the honeybee, which collaborating with the other honeybees harvests from among the fruits of nature and processing its harvest through the organ of its own being produces something which is sweet and useful for humanity. This is the honeybee. And to do this is the ultimate, as Bacon puts it, act of Christian charity, that to be a scientist is the best kind of Christian charity, because what gift could there be better than to improve the life of every human who will ever be born after you? He's a beautiful rhetorician, not much of an actual scientist, but a beautiful <laughs> rhetorician. And this idea catches fire. Noblemen start spending their money on expensive telescopes and weights and measures, uh, just as they had earlier on expensive paintings, and you get a vogue of science and scientific inquiry, which rapidly develops to Newton's optics and theories of gravity and the development of calculus and a lot of other development of new ways to explain the world. The reason this comes about in 1600, we can credit to slash blame on the Renaissance. Um, and the simplest answer is, 
the Renaissance's desperate plan in its desperate from its own perspective situation was let's revive the lost arts of the ancients, which means we've got to find all the ancient books. And they think when they start this process that all the ancient books will fundamentally agree with each other. There's one unified truth that the ancients had that we have lost and we need to get it back. And also this truth will be 100% compatible with Christianity because Christianity is true and this is true. And since they're both true, they must work together. Uh, and then they find all the ancients and they read them and they discover that the ancients disagree with each other radically. And Epicureans and Stoics and Platonists and Aristotelians don't in any way believe the same thing. But also they all disagree with what everyone in the Renaissance thought was true. And also they disagree with all the medieval authorities and also they disagree with Christianity. And then you also get the Reformation. So Christianity splits apart and starts to disagree with each other. And so instead of one unified truth, which is going to unite everything, instead we have 50 jillion different truths that you can't unite at all, which results in a crisis in the late six, late 1500s, where everyone says, okay, there used to be like three different things competing for me to believe them, and now there are 30, I can't handle it. Let's scrap it all and start over. And Bacon and Descartes are both part of a movement that says, as is Galileo, that says, you know what, all these ancients, we don't know which one is right. Let's put them all aside and start from scratch observing things, deducing things, and make it the new philosophy, which is what they call it. And so Bacon comes out of a moment of crisis of everybody thinking, we used to think we could just know what was true by reading the oldest books, because the oldest books must be the best, because they've lasted a long time. Now that they realize the oldest books all disagree with both each other and their religion, which also disagrees with itself, they begin from the beginning. So the idea of progress starts at that point, and intentional systemic work to try to pause progress and governments investing in things that are supposed to lead to progress. Now we know there had been progress the whole time, right? There had been technological change in the Renaissance. There had been technological change in the Middle Ages, new kinds of plows, new agricultural techniques. You can trace progress all the way back, but it's at the moment that Bacon believes he invented it, the anthropogenic kind in particular, that everyone gets the idea, oh, I see, the next generation's experience will be different. Bread will not be bread. Their bread will be better because their mill will be better and their wheat will be finer. So we kind of become conscious for conscious of, of progress for the first time in our history, perhaps. Exactly. So not only were they trying to intentionally cause it, but they were also aware of a phenomenon that we understand has always been there uh, and trying actively to push that phenomenon forward. I don't think it's only because they tried that it accelerated at that point. I think it's also largely the information technology revolution, which had happened in 1450 and after and was already on the way. Uh, change was going to get faster and faster in that phase, no matter what. Uh, and I sometimes refer to this as the exponential age, the age at which the rate of change is increasing in all different kinds of ways. We still would have had that without Bacon, but Bacon makes people pay attention to it and think of it as human generated. Yeah. Now, in yeah. Bacon's understanding, it's human-generated and it's, it's voluntary. It only happens when humans try, and it wouldn't happen if we weren't trying. We now understand it as it's constant, change at least, development of human civilization. The fact that bread now is not bread 50 years ago is not the bread of 1912 when they invented sliced bread. Uh, whenever anyone says the greatest thing since sliced bread, I always think 1912, a very specific year, okay. Um, <laughs> 
The interesting thing is that I eat more porridge now that's the closest thing to the ancient Greek porridge that I could make today because I I use whole groats, which mm. are very little processed. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, but I wanted to, uh, you to share this with us and, and perhaps maybe even talk a little more about the Christian connection here, because you did mention about that sort of Christian zeal or Christian duty that Bacon mm -hmm. was talking about in terms of leaving something or impacting in a positive way all right. future generations charity. of humanity, exactly. And also the other major sort of scientific or renaissance or in, uh, uh, figures such as Descartes and even Newton were mm. extremely, uh, perhaps you would disagree with me, but I would call them even fanatical Christians, especially in the case of Newton. Uh, so, so can you talk to us a little more about that connection between progress and Christianity? Because people often consider that to be a divergence or an opposing mm -hmm. point of view where progress means going away or moving away from the church and especially Christianity in general. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a, it's, it's one of the X factors that people claim causes the Renaissance, the, that there's a split away from the church towards secularization that a law, just like capitalism, just like individualism, just like nationalism gets credited as, as a cause of the change. But when you look at the, these figures, yes, you, you see an enormous uh, amount of not only people who are clearly pious theists, and I'm using theist carefully here because Christianity is getting really plural uh, in this period. And it's not just that, you know, Newton is in England and therefore an Anglican and Descartes is in France and therefore a Catholic like Newton is a wizard and he's doing alchemy and he's doing stuff with spirits and, and looking for a secret code in the Bible. Yeah, you know, and his Christianity isn't a standard Anglican Christianity. And Descartes is also innovating within the Catholic framework. And his earlier works are more heterodox and only become a bit more strictly Catholic when uh, Galileo's condemnation happens. And then he suddenly becomes much more careful about being orthodox, but it's not that the earlier ones were somehow atheistical. They were radical theisms that weren't the theisms that we look for. Uh, but yet there's this strong historiographical claim, which you do not get until the 19th century, that claims that this is a secularization direction. And I, I do study that claim a lot. And it's an interesting claim. Uh, there are several different directions to plunge into the discussion of it, but I think uh, an interesting, it's hard to pick. Uh, That's why I want to talk to you about this because I am kind of manipulating you here a little bit or setting you up towards our later discussion about the singularity and transhumanism and whether those are in their own right allegedly secular or not. And so, I, but I want to start with the roots here first. Yeah. So, in my work on censorship, one of the things I've noticed is that one of the victims of censorship that we don't think about very much is that when later eras study the records produced in the regime that has censorship, those documents will be 
suspect and invalid because we know they were produced under censorship and we know there was self-censorship on the part of the author. And therefore, that future generation that's writing a history of this period will always feel that they have to read between the lines to get at what the real thing was that that figure said, because we know the figure can't be being honest. That's really slippery because it requires psychological reading and guessing and feeling that you know the mindset of a person who isn't expressing it. And it means that the the historical record becomes extremely vulnerable to being manipulated often sincerely and unintentionally by later people projecting ideas onto something. So, you know, for the rest of time, when we try to write a history of Stalin's Russia, or when we try to write a history of China right now with its complicated censorship regime, any document a historian uses is always going to be suspect because we know that it's written by people who know they're being censored. And that's going to make it permanently vulnerable to being, uh, to having different ideas projected onto it. The same is true of medieval and Renaissance because of the idea of the Inquisition and our knowledge that atheism was illegal and other things were illegal. And therefore, when you read any of these works, people come to them and say, ah, but the author wouldn't be honest if he was an atheist. I have to look for atheists by reading between the lines to get an atheist. And so you can never convince people that somebody isn't a secret atheist. It's really hard to convince people that X person isn't a secret atheist. Because no matter how fervently X person says that they believe in Christianity, the the modern person making the claim that that person is an atheist can always say, oh, no, no, he's only saying that to protect himself. Now, you can, in fact, get at really strong forms of evidence to show that these people aren't closet atheists. Um, One of the most effective being when you can demonstrate that they did state their support for a belief which was more dangerous to support than atheism. Uh, You know, so I I study people who read Lucretius and the De Rerum Natura, which is this- I love Lucretius, and especially De Rerum Natura, yes. It's it's this ancient Epicurean poem about physics and atoms and vacuum and there's no afterlife and there's no divinity involved in creating the world. Death is just the end. Everything feels incredibly modern. And for a long time, people have always assumed if Renaissance people are reading it, it's because they're closet atheists. Why else would somebody be excited? This has to be what it is. And so I'll look at a person that someone has claimed is a closet atheist. So well, let's look at his actual life. He published a letter supporting Martin Luther, who was tried by the Inquisition for insisting that we should prioritize scripture over faith, and went to the stake for Lutheranism. If he was a closet atheist, no, he wouldn't do that. A closet atheist doesn't go to the stake for sola fide. He just doesn't. Uh, And going through dozens of lives, that's the most clear one. There are so many cases where There are letters in which somebody expresses a belief that is much more likely to actually get them in trouble than atheism would, right? That I look at that and I say, no, this person wouldn't be being silent about being an atheist when he's being public about calling the Pope an antichrist and about his boyfriends and their gay sex and about a bunch of other stuff, which is more likely to get him in trouble than atheism, which frankly, the Inquisition did not care very much about. Uh, because they didn't think it was a big deal. They didn't think it was dangerous. 
the Inquisition is worried about things that are 98% correct in their view. They're worried about rival theisms because they're worried about the virtuous, pious Catholic who's going to get confused by Calvin and slip into this other piety. They think atheism is only ever going to affect people who are already wicked and damned anyway. So they don't bother to prosecute it very much. So we have all these figures like Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. And I can find you 10 books that claim that Giovanni Pico della Mirandola is an atheist. And he never expresses support for atheism. And he expresses tons of support for stuff that's much more radical. And Brian Copenhaver has this great giant book that just came out. It's over, over there. It's like that, that thick. Um, uh, about uh, Pico's oration on the dignity of man, how it's not an oration, it's not on the dignity of man. It's a manual on how to turn yourself into an angel. That's definitely what it is. That's definitely what he was doing. Here's a book, oh, a huge book. Uh, how to turn yourself into an angel. That is what he is doing. But people later point to him and say, oh, he was secretly an atheist because he couldn't have said it if he was an atheist. So clearly he's secretly an atheist. So that's a 19th century claim. And I want to zoom into that because I sympathize with that. And I learned how to understand the impulse behind that claim when at dinner parties. And sometimes I'll be at a dinner party and I'll be talking to a spouse of a colleague and they'll say, what do you study? And I'll say, say I study the history of atheism. And they'll say, oh, was so-and-so secretly an atheist? They were secretly an atheist, right? And it'll be some historical figure. It'll be Newton, or it'll be Machiavelli, or it'll be somebody that, or Leonardo da Vinci, that they clearly respect and, 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 and feel viscerally must have been a secret atheist. And I realized after several of those conversations what that actually is. It's the desire to feel that a smart person, a smart person who understands math and science and is like me, would be an atheist as I am, like not, not me, me, but the person asking the question, no matter when they were born. Uh, that that the, the, the modern atheist asks this one wants to feel that their atheism is independent of culture. That if they'd been born in another culture and another time, their intelligence would nonetheless get them to question the beliefs of their society and arrive at atheism, even if they weren't now when atheism is common. And the proof of that would be if Leonardo da Vinci was an atheist or if Pico was an atheist or whoever it is that, that you look at and say, those smart people throughout history, they were definitely atheists, right? And the, the answer to that question is no, because... The evidence wasn't there. That's what I think a lot of modern atheists don't understand about the difference between pre-modern and modern atheism. Until Darwin, there isn't an answer to most of the fundamental questions about how the world works, right? Because the proofs of the existence of God that are used by Aristotle and that are used by Thomas Aquinas and that are used by everybody are forest animals have forest camouflage and desert animals have desert camouflage, and the woodpecker eats things in wood and it has a bill necessary to do so. Everything in nature is clearly planned and crafted and there's a clear structure behind it. How can that be unless there's an intelligence that made that plan? And until Darwin, the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, and when you read pre-Darwinian atheists. There are some. They're in the 18th century. They're gorgeous. Diderot is gorgeous. I never 
Your book gives the best example of Marquis Josat. <laughs> Your book quotes the best example of Marquis Josat going against that kind of line of reasoning. And I'm going to let our listeners and viewers read that and find that because it's hilarious and it's brilliant, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a brilliant satire of, of Aquinas's proof. But Diderot, when he talks about his atheism, he says, I don't know. I don't have an answer to how the stars move if there aren't angels. I don't have an answer to how animals have what they need to live if there isn't an intelligence. I admit that my science doesn't make sense, that I can't explain life without a divinity, that that the burden of proof is on me and that the scientific evidence is on the theist side. And I admit that, he says. But I nonetheless instinctively believe that there isn't a God and that the world isn't ordered by an intelligence. And I'm going to honestly describe the world that I perceive. And I'm going to try to study science enough to see if I can start to figure it out. But in the meantime, he admits his atheism isn't based in evidence. It's a visceral belief. Uh, I like to compare 18th century atheism almost to being a creationist today in that you've turned your back on all the scientific evidence in order to believe this one thing that you viscerally think is true, even though you know it means everyone around you is going to mock you and not take you seriously. That's what it's like to be an atheist before Darwin, when, when the science isn't on your side. Uh, it takes a very particular, instinctive, honest kind of person to do that. And they're very rare. And Diderot is one of them. So my answer to that person at a dinner party who asks me, was Leonardo da Vinci an atheist? And really is asking, if I'd been born in the Renaissance, would I be an atheist? <laughs> right? That's what the question actually is. If I were born in the Renaissance, would I still be an atheist like I am now? The answer to that question is no, but you wouldn't be a standard Catholic either. You would belong to one of the new and radical and pushing the envelope radical theisms of the period. You might be a radical Neoplatonist syncretist, which is what Pico was, who was trying to put together all world religions to get at a kind of religion, which would unite the wisdoms of Islam and Zoroastrianism and Kabbalah into stuff, right? I think that that person who says, if I were born in the Renaissance, would I still be an atheist, would be radically heterodox but it would be the radical heterodoxies that science supported at the time, not atheism, which science of that day didn't. And that's a hard answer to wrap your head around, but there are these brilliant, bizarre theisms in the Renaissance that are way weirder than we're prepared for. The stuff that Pico is trying to do, turning himself into an angel using Pythagorean mathematical variations on Kabbalah and running them on the Quran, it's just like, whoa, uh, it's so out there and so different. And we do a disservice to the enormous diversity of belief systems that radicals in the Renaissance developed if we say, no, 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 they're all just lying and actually just atheists, right? Why we're, we're diminishing them by assuming that they would fall on this comfortably modern position and and not admitting that in fact their positions are more innovative more strange and more diverse than speaking of more innovative and more strange positions and also continuing that thought about uh 
uh, theism and atheism, uh, and perhaps many of the lessons of, of sort of that mini lecture that you just gave us on on, on atheism uh, could be carried over with respect to secularism. Mm -hmm. um, where does this or does this have anything to tell us today about ideas such as the technological singularity and transhumanism? Um, in that sort of spectrum or thinking, because of course, there are those who have called that, you know, the rupture for uh, the rupture of the nerds, uh, you know, the church of robotics, uh, the, the second coming for geeks, uh, you know, then there's others who have called it a very sort of scientific, secular movement, uh, etc, totally divorced from science, uh, I mean, from religion, uh, very scientifically back uh, and very secular. Where do you perceive that and, and what's your general take on the technological singularity? So there are, there's a great book called Apocalypses by the historian Eugene Weber. Um, and it's a study of the many different apocalypses that are about to come that humanity has believed in over a long time. Um, there is something emotionally and psychologically satisfying in a narrative sense about an understanding of the future where there's some uh, climax or, or you know, point of absolute shift or change or end. And when we zoom way out, we see this in religions that have ideas of a rapture or an apocalypse or a Ragnarok or a the Omega point. end of the Mayan calendar. But we also see this in ones that have an idea of someday there will be a new golden age or there will be the return of King Arthur or something. There are all of these different examples in very different kinds of spaces of how it's narratively satisfying to have some node moment in the imagined future at which things are gonna come together and, and undergo an absolute change. And sometimes that is an ending and sometimes it's a rebirth and sometimes it's negative and sometimes it's positive and sometimes it's negative for some people and positive for other people. Um, and somehow that's a useful psychological tool for us when we're trying to imagine the future of time. Uh, infinity is hard and Slow, infinitesimal progress, which is difficult to understand, is narratively unsatisfying and narratively tricky. And, and I don't say that to diminish it, because narrative is so much of how the human brain works, right? Narrative is how we remember information. Um, when, when you hear a story about stuff that happened in history, you remember it way better than if you just get facts. Uh, and when I tell you the story about Mike... Machiavelli's friend writing to Machiavelli, there's a little bit of a story there, and that's much more memorable than if there isn't a story. When you look at people who in the Guinness Book of Records hold the record for being able to memorize the most random information and, and regurgitate it, they do it by making up a narrative and inserting those objects into the narrative and then remembering the narrative and regurgitating. There are, there are fundamental structures in the human mind that work narratively. Uh, and that this isn't belittling them, it's just an actual function of the way the human mind works that makes there be a lot of cognitive utility to trying to understand a future which has a, a climax of some sort. And so I think that 
thinking about the singularity as there being some single moment in which the progress of technology reaches a kind of flip point maximum. I think that obsession is not strictly religious, but like those religious narratives, fulfills this narrative function of being able to imagine that everything in the world is coming toward a future moment where there's going to be a and and you can understand a before and after of stages of things in terms of it. It fulfills the same function. Does that make it a religion? Depends on how you define religion. Um, but it does make it a psychological tool that fulfills the same function that those elements of religion have long fulfilled because there are plenty of religions that don't have that, right? There's no apocalypse coming in the future for coyote uh, and there's no apocalypse coming in the future for many versions of Buddhism but there are for other versions of Buddhism because Buddhism like Christianity is very plural um, so some religions don't have that some things that aren't religions do have that I think the two are unrelated to each other but it is common in the narrative structures that we use to imagine our place relative to time and civilization and the change that undergoes with human beings. And I also think it's related to fear of powerlessness uh, because a lot of us have anxiety about feeling powerless and we wanna know how much power do I have to affect the future? And we're surrounded by narratives that tell us none, right? The future is a giant set of gears that's grinding on and almost nobody has power over it or nobody has power over it uh, or only presidents have power over it. Ray Kurzweil has this very famous sort of exponential curve on which he shows that no wars, not even the Great Depression, World War One, World War Two, nothing really made an impact on his curve. You have this kind of accelerated law of accelerating returns that he calls. And right. starting with the 1890s census in the United States going, you know, to early 21st century, not, nothing really impacted that curve. The curve goes forward no matter what what is that curve measuring it measures uh the the computational uh power of of cpus originally okay. starting in the census of 1890 which was the first right. sort of partly automated counting census then going through vacuum tubes then going through transistors, mm -hmm. then going through microprocessors and, and how many processors you can put. You know, basically Moore's law is one uh, yeah. example or embodiment of uh, what Ray Kurzweil calls the law of accelerating returns, which he says started way earlier before Gordon Moore identified it and continues and will continue much later. <sighs> I think it's, you know, it's very significant that that's happening. And it's very significant that uh, there's a development in, in technology and it is going to move toward moments that are going to change the relationship between humans and technology and especially between humans and knowledge because the singularity is usually connected with the idea of being the moment that technology is beyond what humans can actually understand and the technology is then generating itself. But it's not the first such crisis that we've had. There's a really fascinating crisis that starts in the late 16th century, and it's a result of printing. Uh, and and uh, Anne Blair's work on Conrad Gesner is the great stuff on this. But the, the, the crisis that hits uh, in the late 16th century and then finishes hitting in the 18th century is a really neat one and very similar, and you'll see why in a moment. The crisis is, 
it's no longer possible to read all the books. Up until that point, there were only so many books because producing one book costs as much as a house and any given scholar doesn't produce that many books and they get duplicated. And there was a certain sort of palette of standard books. Everybody read Caesar, everybody read Virgil, everybody you know, had Aquinas and either read it or didn't read it. If you were an educated person, you were, an ed you were educated in all the fields and you knew all the books. And you hadn't necessarily read all the books, but you, you knew all the books and you'd read all the key books. Um, and Gesner in the late 16th century, as print is accelerated, uh, people are getting overwhelmed by how many new books there are and they can't keep up. And he says, well, I'll print a, a book called the Universal Library, which is going to be a list of all books. And he starts printing it and new books are appearing faster than he can add their titles to the thing to print it. And so then he has to make a, a index of indexes <laughs> of information. And there's a crisis of there is too much to know. It used to be that being educated meant having all the fields and knowing all the basic things. And maybe you hadn't read that particular commentary on Horace, but you knew Horace and you knew all the fields. And at that point it started to be, wait, I can't know all the things. We have to subspecialize. No one human can now be learned. And there is a crisis. Does this mean it's impossible to be learned anymore? Does this mean learning has overtaken humans and humans can no longer be learned, that we can only be a fraction of learned because learning is accelerating beyond what anybody can control? And the answer is yes. And we cope with it and we deal with it. And the generations around Ben Franklin are the generations that have finally said, okay, there's going to be specialization. And we're, you know, a gentleman will try to be educated in these basic fields and then specialize in only one and, and leave it there. Uh, that is a huge existential crisis. Uh, civilization getting this age of, wait, no, there will never again be anyone who is learned. There will never again be anyone who understands all the things. That will be possible, we'll surrender that. Uh, and we'll have specialization and not education. I think that what happens with the singularity will be a crisis for humanity along the lines of that, and that we'll cope with it. And that afterward, historians will say, yes, that was an important turning point. But we, know, we don't put a giant era mark in 1580, uh, that's the middle of the Renaissance turning into not yet the early Enlightenment-ishoid thing, um, even though that crisis happened then. Uh, we tend to still put our lines where? With the French Revolution uh, or with World War I or with you know, moments like that that dwarfed that moment, even though, yes, that moment was absolutely philosophically, existentially an absolute change in what it meant to be human and what it meant to know and the relations between humans and knowledge. And, you know, in the same sense of the singularity, you absolutely could make that be your line uh, instead of 1348 or uh, 1789. You could absolutely put your civilizational line at 1580. 2045, Ray Kurzweil says. Tw yeah, at the moment that it's stopping possible to be a learned human. So I, I think the singularity will, will be like that in that it'll be a moment that people who study knowledge and tech recognize was a major existential crisis for humanity, but that will be surrounded by flashy wars and events and recovery after the failure, after the recovery, after climate change or whatever other <laughs> things are happening at that point. And so it's unlikely to even be as important as an era name because our era names tend to be dominated by wars, major visible demographic shifts, and that'll be important existential, real, but not the same.
that that's one of the most interesting examples I've heard so far of comparison between the the singularity and anything that's happened in the past and it's kind of very unique and very interesting so I'll be pondering that for a while and digesting it uh, because it's entirely new to me uh, but let me ask you this then so Ray Kurzweil also has these so-called six epochs of the singularity where he talks about how you know the first epoch is basically physics and chemistry where information was processed in terms of uh, physics and chemistry the second epoch was uh, basically life um, was processing information so we had living bi biology then the the, the third does he put for the epoch shifts sorry what dates does he propose for the epoch shift? Broadly speaking, he doesn't put like okay. specific dates, but there's like these epochs. And then the next epoch is like where you had uh, the birth of the human mind, right? So information you had first at the level of physics and chemistry, then going at the level of biology, then shifting up to the human mind. Mm -hmm. Then the next epoch is the epoch where you have technology so information processing moves on from the human mind into technology then the next epoch is the so-called merger between technology and the human mind the moment where uh, humanity becomes one with the machines and then the final sixth epoch that he talks about is the epoch when the universe wakes up and because you know right now we live in this so-called dumb universe uh, you know, but eventually we'll have these Dyson spheres and Matryoshka brains and, you know, even the, the, the dumb dust, all the matter in the universe will eventually become smart matter. We'll have these giant computroniums and, quote, the universe wakes up because even the dust will be smart dust. What do you make of this kind of like teleological sort of evolutionary path from, you know, chemistry and biology all the way towards the, the universe wakes up? Um, it's, I mean, it's very, it's very teleological. It's very beautiful and exciting. Uh, and I certainly am excited myself about uh, neural implants and, you know, when can we upload a human consciousness into a technological Thing that will run similarly or will it never run similarly and my science fiction looks at this that's the fifth stage of the singularity or the fifth epoch as he calls yeah, it and yeah. more more science fiction that i haven't written yet but i'm outlining because i outlined for years before i write a thing uh looks at that um and it's and it's very exciting but when it comes to the question of the universe waking up and becoming smart my question is have we really showed that it isn't already um, to to ask the question of do we even understand the universe enough to know whether it's operating on a macrocognitive level already, I think is overstating our knowledge thereof, right? We're, we're in the process of, for example, discovering how much the root systems of forests are communicating with each other across miles and are perhaps macroorganisms to a level that we didn't recognize. Uh, and until we've done more serious study of the universe as a whole, based on that kind of examination, I wouldn't be willing to accept as proved the claim that the universe doesn't already have cognitive structures operating in it. And what about, you said, 
not to say that I think there is evidence that it does, but I think that we don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And what about this kind of teleological timeline? People would say, well, what if it's teleological? What's the problem with it being teleological? What's the issue with that? Usually the fail condition of teleological narratives, historically speaking, has been that they then lead you to the ethical judgment of judging individual people, movements, etc., to be good or bad based on whether they advance that teleological notion or seem to be an enemy of that teleological notion. And it also tends toward the omission of the people who don't fit that teleological narrative. The Renaissance is one of our best places to explore this because the Renaissance narratives tend to, uh, the X-factor ones, the one that want to say the Renaissance is the beginning of modernity and modernity begins because of X appearing, which then makes the Renaissance happen and, and, and modernity flow from it. Every person who writes one of those histories strategically includes certain people, strategically excludes certain people, and makes the same people heroes or villains based on which X factor they think it is. Uh, so in the book, I have a discussion of Lorenzo de' Medici, hero or villain. Uh, and I have a list of five books in which he's a hero, and I have a, histories by, by historians, and a list of five here, histories where he's a villain. And uh, there's a great... Um, uh, book, which is the proceedings from a conference I was at, where they invited, I think it was 30 scholars to present basically Medici good or Medici bad. And it was exactly a 50-50 split uh, of, of, of real carefully, meticulously researched historical articles with evidence Medici good and with evidence Medici bad. But what determines whether you get a hero Lorenzo de' Medici or a villain Lorenzo de' Medici is teleology is what the X factor is. If it's a historian who thinks that banking is the core of the Renaissance, then Lorenzo de' Medici is the Medici under whom the bank failed. The Medici who spent and overspent on art and culture so much that the bank ended and the Medici transitioned to instead being a noble ruling family and, and a cultural family, but not a banking power. And you have books that say, you know, if not for Spendthrift Lorenzo, then the Medici Bank might still exist, like the Fuga Bank of Germany today. Uh, and you'll get a different history where what, what it is is, you know, the flowering of individualism and uh, the Renaissance man and this new philosophy of man and humanism. So he's a hero because he's the one who funds all of this. And he's the philosopher prince who writes philosophical poems and gathers all of the scholars in Pico around himself and enables the production of you know, the had to turn himself into an angel, the, the oration on the dignity of man. And now you have Lorenzo de' Medici as a hero. Both of these are because it's a teleological narrative. Uh, and in each of them, you'll also get people who are left out, right? So when people want to say it's democracy, democracy, republics, republicanism, citizens participating in their own government, that's what makes the Renaissance. So then we want to look at all the great Renaissance authors who lived in Florence and Venice and ignore all the great Renaissance authors who lived in monarchies and Fontano and Francesco Falelfo and the people who worked for the King of Naples and the people who worked for the Duke of Milan. They're just not mentioned in these stories. You get these distortions that include only the people who are able to be portrayed as heroes or villains, whichever it is. 
uh, and excludes the people who don't make sense in the context of that narrative. That's the danger of teleology is not just judgment, but also omission. And you start not realizing how much of what changes, uh, and I know you wanted to say something, but this is a long answer and please give me a moment to give it. How much of what changes is unintentional? Uh, so I did an article recently, which will grow gradually into a book, which is a new investigation to the question of where did atheism come from if it wasn't that these Renaissance people are closet atheists? Because we definitely have Diderot, right? We have Diderot, there he is in the 18th century saying, I am an atheist. He's really there. The Marquis de Sade is really there. La Matrie is really there. We absolutely have them. Where did they come from? Did they just materialize out of nowhere in the 18th century? That doesn't make sense. But if Pico isn't an atheist and Machiavelli and these other figures probably aren't closet atheists, what is the link? How do we get from the Renaissance to Diderot? And I was trying to say, okay, well, I'm going to look in a really goofy place. So I did an article on the tedious editor's uh, introductory prefaces for classroom editions of the Stoic philosopher Epictetus and his moral lectures on how to be an ethically upright person. And they're badly written and they're repetitive and there's dozens and dozens of them and they're just exactly the kind of least interesting <laughs> source of mystery philosophy you could imagine. But each of these prefaces is trying to sell Epictetus and saying this is a moral work uh, by an ancient Roman philosopher, Roman pagan philosopher, but nonetheless it teaches you good stuff about how to be an ethical person. So you should read it and you should teach it in your classroom. And because capitalism you know, is competitive, each editor is trying to sell their edition of Epictetus. And so they're making slightly more extreme claim than the last editor did about how great Epictetus is. And so in the earliest edition, it's like Epictetus, yes, he was a pagan philosopher, but he was so virtuous, he was almost as virtuous as a, as a Christian. And we should read him because Christian readers will be spurred to shame if they find themselves not holding up to the ethical standards of even a pagan, you know, they, that it'll push them to be better. And then, you know, that's 1490s. And then you're into the 1530s and you're looking at the editions and they're like, Epictetus, yes, he was just as good as a Christian, even though he was a pagan. You should read him kind of as if he was a Christian author. And then a little while later, it's Epictetus. He was so great at teaching us ethics. He's even better than St. Paul at teaching us ethics. Even though he's <laughs> pagan, he's better at it. Until by the time you get to... Uh, 1580 and 1620 and the edition that Voltaire owned when Voltaire was a kid and the Diderot would have owned when Diderot was a kid but I haven't traced his library thoroughly enough um, the the introduction to the tedious Epictetus that you have to read in school says Epictetus by the light of reason alone arrived at better knowledge of ethics and the nature of divinity than St. Paul and it says that just because the editor is trying to sell his edition of Epictetus better than the earlier editor, and this game of telephone has gone on, and yet young Voltaire pulls us off the shelf and says, oh, clearly we don't need scripture to get to ethics and the nature of God. Clearly we can have deism. That's what this Epictetus introduction says. Nobody involved in this process is an atheist. Nobody involved in this process believes himself to be undermining Christianity at all. They're trying to sell an ethical textbook to raise young boys to be good Christians. 
But bit by bit, they make the arguments that dismantle the necessity of scripture and set the stage for deism and thereby atheism and the question of whether you can be ethical without religion, right? None of them are a hero or a villain of a teleological narrative. They're not opposing atheism or encouraging atheism. They're doing random other directional stuff that doesn't point toward anything. But I think it's them more than Machiavelli, more than any of the figures who look radical, who actually end up creating Diderot. And the problem with teleological narratives is that it makes us ignore the fact that a huge portion of real change is made by people who didn't intend that change to happen, who are doing stuff for their own purposes that cause the change. Atheism isn't caused by, the flourishing of atheism in the 18th century isn't caused by atheists working for it's caused by the enormous diversity of weird theisms that everyone was doing. The, the dismantling of science that leads to Bacon and Descartes and Galileo and the renewal of science at the beginning of the 1600s, that wasn't done by scientists doing experiments proving early science wrong. It was done by people trying to read Plato and Aristotle, make them agree with each other and reading Lucretius and realizing that it didn't agree. People who were doing other weird projects, people who were trying to turn themselves into an angel. And what you get instead of turning yourself into an angel is Francis Bacon entrenching the scientific method. It wasn't what Pico was trying to do, but it's what Pico ends up doing. And we want to say in our narratives that intentional action is what moves the world. That there were these geniuses in the past that had this image of the future and the future would be secular and the future would be scientifically brilliant in the future would be freer and more democratic. And they worked like a secret underground to try to make that future that they envisioned come true. We want the power fantasy that when we imagine a future, our deeds will make it the future we imagine. Uh, but our present wasn't made by people who envisioned our present. Our present is way weirder than anything that people <laughs> in the Enlightenment or people in the Renaissance envisioned. They were trying to make a world that was different. The world that they were trying to make isn't the one that came about, right? They were trying to make a world where Islam and Christianity would be merged into a renewal of Platonism and we would all be Platonists and God, we'd learn how to project our souls out of our bodies and use them to spy on each other's cows. That's not what happened, but this is what happened. Uh, and so my main concern whenever I see theology is we have to re-empower in our imaginations the people who don't know what future they're working toward. The people who are just trying to do the thing that we think is best to do right now, because that's going to be a contribution to what will happen. Um, the lie is when a magazine has a splash page about some Silicon Valley tech tycoon and says, does this man know the future of the human race? The answer is no, uh, because nobody does. And that man isn't going to have a plan and make it happen any more than Pico or Lorenzo de' Medici are going to have a plan and make it happen because none of the plans happen. But every small thing that that editor who published Epictetus and you who are making this podcast and whatever who's watching the podcast's job is, doing the small thing you're doing to do the best output you have, those which don't envision the future that will happen are what make that future. Wow, that's fascinatingly and and brilliantly well said i think um so so and and it's very useful because uh many people 
basically tell that story of the singularity and and make people valuable or not valuable, good or bad, as you said, whether they contribute towards the singularity or not, and make people irrelevant if they do neither. So so that it's kind of like a a, 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 a a value system, if you will, of usefulness which you can take and apply to anything around our modern world and see. Does this bring us towards a singularity? No. Therefore, it's either not good or, irre or irrelevant. But uh, let me ask you here about, because we talked about um, progress, let's talk a little bit about intelligence mm. and where that fits, because intelligence, and especially artificial intelligence, is a big part of the, the idea behind the technological singularity. And so one of the reasons for that is, of course, the idea that more intelligence would allow us to solve all of our problems, including uh, war, cancer, death, mortality, global warming, uh, law, um, crime. On law, you finally got to one that's hard. Well, you name it, anything you know, artificial super intelligence, which mm -hmm. would be omnipotent, ever present and all knowing at the speed of light would solve all of the, of our questions. So let me ask you first, before we get to evaluate that big claim, let's start with a small cl claim. In your professional view as a historian, is it true to say that more intelligence, uh, let me, Restructure it. So first of all, are we moving from less towards more intelligence? And is if that's the case, is that making us better ethically or morally in any way, historically speaking? I'm going to introduce into that the third interrelated question. Is it making us more powerful? Which is parallel to but unrelated to whether it's making us ethically better. So I think that In, an individual human now isn't smarter than an individual human a long time ago. Um, we have different information that we're built on and we're able to develop our minds with different you know, preconceptions and so on. But, but our cognitive skill isn't greater. And I'm sometimes looking at the things that really, really ancient people arrive at with almost no scientific knowledge to base it at. And I just sit there in awe uh, that, that they did. Um, however, we have a lot more people now. Uh, and if you're talking about the uh, that curve of increasing our computing power, right? Humanity is also increasing our computing power as we have more people total. And we can also increase our computing power as a larger portion of people can apply that intelligence to things that really require intelligence, right? Every time we automate burger flipping so that the person who was needed for burger flipping can now spend their cognitive energy on solving a mathematical problem, we've repurposed more of our collective cognitive capacity to something good. And I feel very strongly that in parallel to that, uh, the can we automate work that doesn't require very much intelligence to move people into areas where there's more intelligence. There's also, even if somebody is working on something that uses intelligence, the question of whether we can uh, free up more of it to be used by 
diminishing the amount of that person's cognitive work that's going to anxiety, fear, and precariousness. You know, we started this by talking about how in the pandemic, no one on earth is running at 100% right now. We're all running at 75% because of the feelings of fear and precariousness. In any given society, there's a portion of people who live in that state of precariousness all the time who always have 25% or more of their cognitive ability taxed away by fear and exhaustion, whether that fear and exhaustion is being in an abusive situation, whether that fear and exhaustion is being below the poverty line and worrying about where money is going to come from. I remember the moment when I transitioned from being on a grad student stipend where I had to pay very careful attention to my spending and really worry about it to my first faculty salary where actually I didn't have to spend cognitive energy on that careful math every month. I could just sort of let it pass. And, and, and it really did feel like 10, 15% of my cognitive power came back and I could work faster and better. I strongly feel that the more we eliminate poverty and fear and precariousness the more we restore 25% of the cognition power to a huge portion of our collective as a civilization cognitive power, right? A huge portion of which is taxed away by people living in states of fear and uh, economic fear. So does higher degree of cognitive power make us better people? Because that's the crux of the argument. The argument is... We have X amount of intelligence. If we have 10X, we would be better people. We would solve all the problems, including death, global warming, war, so, conflict. Again, ethics and power are unrelated. Right? You can have somebody who solves the problem of there not being enough food and makes there be plenty of food who doesn't necessarily also act in an ethical way. Uh, and I think that ethical progress and progress in terms of power are separate from each other. Uh, and you can have things that greatly improve human power that don't necessarily improve human ethics and vice versa. You can have ethical innovations that don't necessarily increase humanity's power to achieve stuff. And when you give that list of things we wanna solve, we wanna solve death, we wanna solve climate change, we wanna solve war, we wanna solve law. And I said, ooh, there you've gotten to one that's actually hard. Because solving law requires everybody agreeing on what's just and agreeing whether law should be utilitarian ethics or virtue ethics or a deontological ethics. And if so, which deontological ethics, which is a much uh, looser question that doesn't have absolute answers. You know, the, the entire ecosystem of the earth is enormous and complicated. And it's going to take all of our energy that we can devote to it to learn as much as we can about it to try to work with solving climate change. But there are, in fact, actual answers to if I do this, will the CO2 levels in the ocean go up or down? There aren't absolute answers to should our ethics be utilitarian or deontological. The answer is both have value and we need to debate them and each of them enhances different kinds of stuff. And in fact, having a diversity of cultures in which some people think about one way and some people think another way increases the variety of art and innovation that we make. And there isn't an absolute answer. But if we try to have that diversity, we'll also always have conflict. 
I don't think increasing our cognitive power will solve or end that problem, but it will increase the fruits of that problem. Because the whole purpose of that is that the debate itself is fruitful and generates new ethical options and new spaces in which we can explore such questions. The more minds we have devoted to debating that, the more we get fruits back from ethics, which is in fact largely about debate and examination and whether we can over time have moments of breakthrough, like the breakthrough when we decided, wait, a justice system should aim at equal punishment for equal crime for all people. That would be a good thing for it to aim at, or it should aim at deterrence and preventing crime rather than just punitively coming after crime. Those are those are amazing achievements in human history that have changed what we aim at and in no way are the same as being powerful enough to do it, right? Right? Because we have Beccaria invent deterrence-based justice in the 18th century, and boy, are we still not very good at it and are working hard at it. Uh, the idea is a revelation. The power to implement it and to implement it well is something that we then want to have as much cognitive power as possible devoted to. But it would sure be great to have 20 more people who are paid a decent wage so that they can relax the way I would, did after grad school instead of a little stressed out as I was in grad school, who are devoted to studying a bunch of effects of different legislation to see which one deterred crime more instead of flipping burgers. That that is great. That's what increases our cognitive ability to work on difficult questions, whether the difficult question is climate change or whether the difficult question is how do we make an egalitarian justice system. The beginning of both of those is let's get a larger portion of our population able to spend their time working on that. Um, and let's get a larger percentage of our brains free from fear so that that brain is working at 100% instead of its 75%. But I think it's dangerous to conflate increase of power with increase of ethics, right? The Renaissance is way more powerful than a, a century earlier when they didn't have developed cannons as much and they didn't have as many ships. Boy, is it more powerful. Is it ethically better? No. They're murdering each other rampantly. And then colonialism and the destructive stuff that comes in, the power and the ethics are both things that develop and improve in, with time, but they don't cause each other to develop. They, they both develop from people working at it, but to assume that one will cause the other, I think is a failure to recognize that many of the major moments of ethics leaps haven't been anywhere near an increase in human power, right? Well, that's been kind of like the, the whole uh, impetus behind my work for the last, I don't know, 15 years to bring that precise point into the conversation that, you know, technology is nice, it's necessary, science is nice and it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And if we're lagging uh, in, in that ethical realm, the mm -hmm. more increased power only increases our temptations and if we don't temper that with a sort of like proportional development in character, in discipline, in wisdom, then the gap growing bigger and bigger only makes us for more and more dangerous, both individually, but also as a species. 
And that's why Dittero my... has a great Dittero is great. Uh, and 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 everybody should read uh, Jacques the Fatalist, Romo's nephew, and D'Alembert's dream. But Diderot has an amazing, sensitive, tender approach to these questions of ethics. Uh, he loves reason and rationality, right? This is the person who has dedicated his life to the Encyclopedia Project, the project that is intended to give every person in his civilization access to the fundamentals of knowledge to empower everybody so that the farmer can understand how his plow and his uh, uh, fertilizer and so on work and make it better so that everybody can understand the technologies around them, including the social technologies of law, et cetera. It's designed to give everybody the power to exercise reason. Diderot gives his life to this. He self-censors all of his own works, right? The ones that I've just named he didn't publish in his lifetime in order to protect the encyclopedia project because he knew if he got in trouble, it might be dangerous. Rameau's nephew disappeared for centuries until it turned up by miracle on the side of the center. We wouldn't even have it. Um, and in it, he talks about how reason is, you know, everything. But, and he talks about this in Rameau's nephew too, society has these irrational moral codes. These things that we viscerally feel are wrong and turn away from. And that those serve a social function. It's part of the glue that keeps the society together. And that until we learn what that social function is, if we use reason to tear those things away and stop doing them, society won't work as well. Uh, Rameau's nephew is a dialogue with a hypothetical, perfectly rational man called Rameau. And he's a terribly rude, obnoxious person because politeness is an irrational social practice. And so he can't force himself to do it. And everyone finds him too difficult to get along with. He had a son and gave the son up for, left the son at a foundling hospital because he rationally concluded that being raised by him would be bad for the kid. So it's rationally correct thing to do to abandon the baby. Um, he's terrifying. And everyone hates being around him and everything he does is perfectly rational because he's broken down the ability to do the irrational social niceties that Diderot says are irrational and do get in the way of us acting on truth. And that sometimes we want to break, but that we don't want to erode completely while we don't even know what they're for. We want to question them carefully and improve our ethics carefully a bit at a time and sometimes say, you know, that that visceral ethical instinct that says it's wrong to do A, that's probably a social safety net that is sort of biologically in here uh, or sociologically ingrained in here to keep the society going. Um, that the increase in power and abstract reason alone aren't necessarily actually going to make the species as a whole get along better and achieve more. Uh, compared to a mindset that maximizes social success, even if it in fact involves doing a few things that are irrational in themselves. Um, it's another way of getting, of getting at the problem that we have to cultivate ethics, not just because of the problem that the more powerful we get, the more we can destroy things when we flail around. And the toddler flailing around can wreck a lot more than the infant. And the Renaissance flailing around can wreck a lot more than 
the Middle Ages and we with our nuclear bombs flailing around can wreck a lot more than the Renaissance did. That's one of the reasons that we need ethics to develop. But we also need ethics to develop because we would never have started doing the social studies projects that led us to realize that we reduce our total species-wide cognitive power if we leave a chunk of our population in poverty. If we hadn't started studying poverty because we did so, because we had ethical ideas that poverty is bad and we want to understand how to combat it, it was the ethics that led us to doing this study that lets us discover, oh, wait, wouldn't it be an enormous increase for our civilizational cognitive power if we made this change that, in fact, most moral codes on earth have always encouraged us to make. We now understand better how the brain works, how stress chemicals work, how neuroreceivers work, and we can now articulate scientifically what every ethical system has always been telling us, that poverty is bad for the whole society and that we too, if we aren't poor, benefit when the poor aren't poor either. We can articulate that differently now, but boy, did we know it anyway. This doesn't mean you shouldn't we shouldn't question old value systems. We absolutely should question them and evaluate them. And Diderot did, and Diderot said we should. But we shouldn't presume that just increasing our power without working hard on our ethics, taking ethics seriously, and recognizing that the ethical systems we have in their weird range and diversity give us a variety of strategies for coping with stuff that we want to fruitfully examine and not abandon or, or declare to be cold or, or uh, superstitious or outdated or backward if, if they don't seem to directly advance this, the advancement of technology, right? We don't want to throw those away any more than we wanted to throw away, you know, indigenous knowledge of medicinal plants, which we've now started taking seriously and studying and are using to treat cancer. So despite what Francis Bacon says, there is a benefit to being an ant and a spider, not only a bee. I don't know if there's a benefit to being a spider, really, because the honeybee is... Well, isn't that what Diderot is saying here, that there is benefit to to kind of that thinking, even if it's not practically immediately No, useful. I mean, Diderot, Diderot is in Bacon's honeybee camp all the way, because the, the problem with the spider and the ant is that they don't believe science is useful. They believe knowledge is gathered for the sake of having knowledge. Uh, and, and when you ask Thomas Aquinas, what is study for? The answer is to understand God, leave earth behind and go to heaven, which is a great end goal uh, for, the, for the time period. What Aquinas does is masterful for the goals of his era. But Diderot is 100% in the camp of Bacon of the goal is the improvement of the human condition on earth. The goal is here. It's not there. It's the goal is in life. It's not in another. I get that. But the answer, not only sort of like gathering sort of like for God or, or to go to that world, but rather it's like the beauty of mathematics, uh, theoretical math or theoretical physics, which may be very beautiful and many people may be attracted oh, to see. it simply because of its beauty or poetry or, or, or perfection, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and, and there may be no immediate application or benefit thereof, and it may so stay there for decades or hundreds of years until one day yeah. it becomes useful. 
here is where I need to describe Leonardo da Vinci and then you'll see the difference because all of that still falls under Bacon's honeybee. Uh, question that people often ask, is Leonardo da Vinci a scientist? Many people would say yes. Yeah, but he's not really. No, because what does he do? He develops really great new yeah. innovative ideas and then he writes them down in mirror writing so that no one else can do it. His goal is not to discover a new thing and give it to the world and share with colleagues and have this increase the sum total of human power. His goal is not, as Bacon articulates it in the New Atlantis, the expansion of knowledge and the expansion of the uh, power of human empire to the attainment of all things possible. Da Leonardo da Vinci's goal is a thousand years from now, people will look on the thing I made and marvel at it and wonder how I did it the way I look at the Roman pantheon and marvel at it and wonder how they did it. It's shockingly it's selfish. Yes. And that is what the Renaissance is about. It's not, I'm going to teach everybody to make this horse. It's, I will make this horse. My patron, the Duke of Milan or whatever, will have this horse. Everyone else will marvel at this horse. And this golden age will stand out in history as a great generation, a great moment. And people in the future will study it and buy replicas. And I will not be giving it to anyone except maybe my personal apprentice. Uh, the knowledge is for me. That's Bacon's aunt who makes a pile and doesn't organize that pile and doesn't pass that pile on. Right. Um, You know, so the, the followers of Bacon are somebody like Newton, Newton's optics, short term, Newton's theory of gravity, short term, you know, within his lifetime, within the lifetime after, it doesn't do anything useful. It describes the world. That's it. It allows you to make more accurate telescopes. You can look at celestial bodies. That's all it does. The, you know, Bacon says in 1600, if we invest our lives and our fortunes in the advancement of science It will improve the human condition. And the first actually useful thing anyone invents based on this is Ben Franklin's lightning rod in the mid-18th century. So it's 150 years before there's a single useful invention from Bacon. But everyone feels like, yes, the Baconian revolution is happening when Newton's optics and Newton's theories of gravity and Descartes' ideas and other things are circulating and feeling like, We're getting there. That's what your mathematicians that you're describing are also doing, because there is the confidence that this is expanding knowledge, which is a part of human empire. And that just as the human sphere expands from the earth to the moon, to Europa, to the places that we've sent our probes to as far as Voyager has gone and will in time expand further and we will be on Mars and we will be elsewhere. So similarly, the expansion of our empire of knowledge will go into deeper realms of mathematics and deeper realms of science and sociology and particle physics, which may never have direct applications, but they will make us wiser and expand that. The question then becomes, we have to be really careful because of the telling warning word in here, empire. Can we do this and do it kindly and not do this in the way that Europe's geographic empires did? Uh, can we do better than the 18th and 19th centuries in terms of expanding human power while being ethical? Yeah, and there was a paper somewhere published in the mid-1850s, I think, either 
that greatly influenced the benefactor of the guy who created the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies or written by him, which is called the usefulness of useless study or something right. or useless science. I read it like, I don't know, 20 years ago, so it's not fresh, but it was, I have to reread it. It's very useful on that kind of topic of, of the usefulness of useless studying. And, and that kind of either inspi inspired him to then basically create the fund behind the, the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies because the idea was you put people there together in the same place, in the same vicinity who don't produce anything useful and who don't need to be stressed about producing anything that's to be immediately useful like Einstein, etc., etc. And then eventually something useful would come out of it. So I have to reread that. It was very, very fantastic paper. Uh, well, and... Uh, on that front as well, so the ancient skeptic sect, we're talking about ancient Greek philosophy, right? So the peers of Stoics and so on. Uh, they, they were, all, they like all ancient philosophers were concerned with human happiness. The goal of classical Greek philosophy wasn't the exertion of power over nature. It was the increase in human happiness. How can we have a happy life? Which is still one of the goals of philosophy along of, of human knowledge seeking out. Yeah, eudaimonia is a little bit different from what we call happiness today, though. What? Eudaimonia is a little yeah, bit different bit, than particularly happiness. because defining it negatively versus positively. But what I, you know, that that would be an hour-long conversation. One of the things they said was a source of pain in human life was curiosity. Humans want to know a thing. We don't need to know the thing, but we want to know the thing, and that itch is there and we want to know it. And so even useless knowledge increases human happiness because we want to know that thing. And we feel satisfied when we know that thing and we get a satisfaction when we know that thing because that little niggle of curiosity has been solved. So if you understand science to both be about increasing human power and be about increasing human happiness, then even then there is no such thing as useless knowledge because knowing the thing is itself satisfying in a way that makes people happy. I remember one time, I don't even remember why, I suddenly wanted to know whether giraffes can swim. And, and I, I shouted to the other people in the room, do we know? Do we as a civilization know whether giraffes can swim? And I started looking it up and I found the best dissertation ever. And it's the, I'm gonna see whether giraffes can swim. Do we know whether giraffes can swim? No, why not? Because giraffes are so tall that when it floods in Africa, they just stand there. Um, so <laughs> we don't know if giraffes can swim. Can we figure out if giraffes can swim? Will any zoo allow me to immerse their giraffe in water taller than the giraffe is so that we can see whether the giraffe will swim? No, no zoo would do that. That would mean if the answer is no, it would be bad. This is not a good idea. Can we make a computer model of a giraffe's movement and its skeleton and figure out whether it's possible for the giraffe to swim? Yes! And so they made a computer model and we've determined that a giraffe can swim extremely slowly because of the fact that its legs go, uh, the two legs on the same side move together instead of sit in a weird way that giraffes do, contrary to most quadrupeds. So they can only swim incredibly slowly, but we've figured out and we've solved it. And I read the paper and I was like, yes, thank you, dissertation. You have solved this question. This was years of somebody's life. 
And we know the giraffes can swim even without ever having made a giraffe swim. So we were even nice to the giraffes. We just measured them and used computers. And this is useless knowledge <laughs> unless seawater levels rise really fast and we suddenly need to evacuate the San Diego Zoo. We do not need to know whether giraffes can swim. Giraffes do not need to swim. But I was made happy by this. And that, I think, is a value of useless knowledge that we don't point at a lot. When people want to say, what's the point of studying the useless thing? We always say, well, you know, penicillin was discovered by accident and all these useful things were discovered by accident. So maybe the useless knowledge will turn out to be useful knowledge one time in a hundred. And, and that's true. But the useless knowledge will be pleasing and good for humankind and sweet, right? The honey isn't just useful. Bacon's honeybee produces something that is sweet and useful for humanity. And the sweet half is also precious. And knowing that we know whether a giraffe can swim is itself a beautiful thing. Ada, we've been talking for two hours and 20 minutes now, and I think uh, we should uh, consider bringing our conversation to an end. And I wanted to touch a lot on a little bit on science fiction and to light the lightning. But can we do that within five minutes, you think? We can touch on it a tiny bit. Um, okay, so, so let me ask you the two or three questions I have about it. First of all, what is science fiction about? I know science it's a big fiction, question, but you have short time to answer that. Uh, as Ursula Le Guin said in her National Book Award speech, genre fiction writers of science fiction, fantasy, and alternate history are realists of a larger reality in which we are exploring not just the Earth that we're in, but other ways societies and worlds could be set up expanding the breadth of imagination of our civilization and expanding the number of civilizations with which we have made a kind of first contact. Since the development of science fiction as a genre, when new technological changes have affected the world, we have had dozens of different well thought through answers to what might this do before it happens. And now that we are developing cloning, we have already explored an enormous number of the ethical pitfalls of it before we do it. Science fiction fights our ethical battles before we have to do them. And is one of the things that makes humanity now more humane and ethically prepared for the speed of change we face than we have ever been before. Wow, that's the best answer. And I've asked probably 20 of the best contemporary science fiction authors so far and uh you know people like Werner Vinge, Cory Doctorow, Charlie Strauss, David Brin, um Carl Schroeder, you name it and and uh I mean that's probably my bias but that was the the best answer I've had so far. Thank and you. also I like that that science fiction fights our ethical battles before we have to oh my god how is it this, I, this is the first time i'm hearing that this pure genius was that you or ursula that that part is me Her, she's the realist of a larger reality oh my god so okay i have to steal that from you and give you credit but i'm stealing it so much it's good utterly, spread it around utterly brilliant wow i've never heard I it think before. every time i hear somebody who 
writes or wants to write science fiction or fantasy or, or reads them say, you know, oh, it's just genre fic, so it's just escapist. I want to say, no, it's the most advanced and sophisticated ethical work our civilization produces. Voltaire wrote science fiction, and if he were here now, he'd be writing more science fiction. Wow. So I, I want to bring you back for another two and a half hour discussions only, only on this point onward, because, wow, this is like opening the floodgates for me, at least. Um, but what does this say about your novel then? Uh, your, I should say, trilogy. Uh, uh, the, the fourth book is on the way. The fourth book is on the way. Yes, that's right. It's the trilogy of four books which often happens in science fiction too. Sometimes there's a trilogy of five or six. But, okay, so what does this say about the first book of that series called To Light the Lightning um, with respect to wh where we are today and maybe what kind of ethical battles we're fighting in that novel so that, you know, we're prepared when we have to get there? Yeah. I mean, there are a bunch of different ethical battles in it, you know, if there was only one, I could have done it in a short story. It it needs the whole length. Uh, one I'll name that I think relates to what we've talked about so far here, however, is that it's a rare example of middle future SF. Uh, what I mean by that is it's several hundred years in the future. We are doing pretty well. Life expectancies are up. We have a pretty egalitarian and fair and open civilization. We're working on terraforming Mars. We're halfway there. We've got a moon base. We're not farther than that. And there's almost no SF in that space. If it's a couple hundred years from now, we're all either way out into the stars, Star Trek, you know, multiple alien species at space opera level, or everything blew up and it was a dark age and we went back to being medieval for a while and are now crawling, you know, post-apocalyptic something. Uh, this is a result largely of in golden age SF, the space race was just starting. It was moving really, really fast. We didn't know how hard space was. We didn't know that our bones degenerate a microgravity. We didn't know viruses come out of suspension and become newly deadly in space. We didn't know how hard and slow and painstaking it might be. It was unrealistic in 1975 to think that we would still be mostly on Earth in 2450. It's a new space for us to explore. The what if we have a positive future ahead of us, but it's a slow painstaking one in which even in that number of centuries, we're still only halfway there, even to the first stepping stone, which is Mars. That's an exciting ethical space to look at. The ethical space that we're in, right? The one that admits that these problems are hard and slow. Um, feminism. Feminism is hard and slow, right? We, we had some of these ideas as early as Lucian of Samosata. We had a more sophisticated version in the Middle Ages. We had an even better version in the 18th century. We really worked on it in the 20th. Here we are in the 21st. Have we won yet? No. Uh, because we're even just beginning to understand how much of sexism is unconsciously passed on when we're toddlers and we don't even realize that it's happening. Uh, we're, we only now understand how hard the battle is and that it's going to be generations to fight it. Um, I'm very interested in the moment of the beginning of the 21st century as being us recognizing that progress is hard. 
Uh, the future that we thought would be here really soon is going to be here, but in a long time, with harder problems before we get there. Climate change is one of them. Uh, harming the planet more than we realize we could is one of them. Uh, unconscious bias being so hard to deal with is one of them. These are going to take us centuries, and I wanted to write something that looked at us a few centuries ahead in a future that is pretty good, and it's not a utopia, and it still has a lot of growing to do, and it's better than our society in a dozen ways and not as good as our society in another three or four, and weird and alienating. It has some things we'd really like and some things that seem very imperfect and that need to change, and it has flaws and internal tensions, and there's still an enormous amount of work to do, and people are still dedicated to doing it. Um, and and passing that process forward so that we're looking at the question, if the future we're working hard to make is like that, if it's not the future we dream, right? If it's not Star Trek only more perfect, if it's something that's only a bit better than now and also a little bit worse and also a little bit just weird, do we still feel that dedicating our lives to building that future is a worthwhile use of our lives? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, but I think we don't ask ourselves that very often. We ask ourselves, is it worth dedicating your life to building the future you want? And we don't ask very often, is it worth dedicating your life to building a future that isn't the future that you envision, but that is a future worth having, even if it's not yours? And I think that's the real question of what it means to be a human being and part of the teamwork that is humanity, part of the teamwork that leads to a singularity that won't be like any of the envisions of the singularity that anybody has right now, right? But a lot of people have contributed to it in unexpected ways, including the editors of those editions of Epictetus and including people who are spending their time right now making a more comfortable diaper, uh, even though that doesn't seem like it contributes in any way to terraforming Mars, but it does contribute to terraforming Mars. But we don't talk about that enough that the teamwork is so much more plural, so much slower and so much blinder than our teleological narratives like to pretend. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing because it means so many more people are powerful. That many, many, many more people are in fact part of getting us to Mars than we are used to thinking of. It's not the few geniuses and scientists. It's also the people who are developing that diaper and the people who are staffing that library, uh, that that teamwork is broader, but it isn't making the future we imagine, but it is making a future worth spending our lives laying the foundations of, even though we don't know what it'll be like. Wow. All I can say is that perhaps maybe even some future historian geek like you uh, we'll discover, uh, just like you were talking about those uh, uh, past sort of forwards uh, to Epictetus and how they influenced uh, Diderot and, and, and all his contemporaries, and maybe they would discover too like the lightning and, and find that it had kind of a similar effect that no one ever suspected. Mm -hmm. um, the goal is to add some con some questions to the great conversation so that people will pay it forward. Yeah.
to me personally, it was a, a, a kind of like, I mean, it, it is a, a future history detective story set in like 2454 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to me, it was very strange in the beginning, so much so that for the longest time, I wasn't sure if I like it. And then towards the second half, maybe even the, the third, I discovered I liked it very much and I discovered it was very rewarding. But I think you have to get to that point because yeah. in the beginning it's so weird and so strange and you're and mixing you're so many in, styles yeah. and so many you're, you're plunging in the way a historian plunges into a historical document. And I pick up something from the Renaissance that they don't, they don't know what I'm going to be wondering and they don't explain what this noun is that they know what it is and they don't bother to tell me it. I don't know. And I wanted to recreate that sense of being a wash. But yeah, it is tricky. And the whole first book is all set up, as you saw. The whole first book, if in as much as it's a whodunit, the entire first book is learning enough about this world to understand what the it is that someone has done. So it's not until the last page of book one that you understand what the whodunit is about. And then in the second half, everything begins to flow and it's all payoff from then on and you watch the world change and you understand the consequences of what has to happen. I sometimes say it's like I've rolled out onto the stage an elaborate Rube Goldberg machine and I've showed you every component and bit until you can finally understand how it fits together and I've pushed the switch. That's the end of book one. And book two is when you know what has to happen. You know how it everything hooks together, you know how large the change that's coming has to be. And you've gotten to know this world well enough to love it. Because one of the things that a lot of science fiction does is plunge us into this world is in crisis. And you say, okay, I didn't know anything about this world anyway. I don't particularly care. I mostly care about the protagonist and whether he wins the space battle. Uh, I wanted to make you understand this world and what's precious in it and the people who love this world and why they love it. So that when it's at risk, you share their fear and you share their mourning and you don't welcome that crisis. You dread that crisis the way we dread the COVID pandemic, the way we dread something that is changing our world radically. Uh, And I think you do that very well, uh, though it it does put a lot of weight on the shoulders of the reader. And I just hope that as many people as possible could actually carry that weight long enough and yeah. do that work before they get the payoff because we are used to get the payoff on the first page yes and this one is where you get the payoff on the last page and it's not even a full payoff it's just like a little freaking taste of it yep. and and so you don't get even fully satisfied it's just like okay you get like the appetizer after working for 20 hours on the yeah. audiobook and now originally you have to- Book one and two were one fat volume, and they they sliced it in half. And I think it's it a good cut. I think it's a very good end for the I think first. It's the point. least bad cut it could be, but it would still have been stronger as one. Uh, sure, if people I, and I could I could deal with like a I don't know sixteen hundred or a thousand page. It's, book. it's a question of it having been a first book from a new author. Uh, right. The the fatter the book, the more expensive it is, and they didn't know how many it's copies it risk. would sell. Yeah, And they didn't risk. expect it to sell very many because it's so hard for the reader in the first place. It sold much better than they expected. It actually sold out in pre-order. They had to reprint it before it came out. 
they had printed so few copies. My author copies that I was sent by the publisher were second printing. Wow. Um, because they didn't expect it to sell very much, but it had a lot of people talking about it in advance. And, and so it was a success. Uh, and so, in fact, book four is twice as long. Book four is the length of books one and two put together and is as long as the original book one would have been. Uh, and if this had been my second series and I had already had a series, it might have been possible to do the full length thing. But there's a maximum length that you can sort of dare do when it's a risky book. Mm -hmm. This was because, as you can see, it's weird and it's hard and it asks a lot of the reader. And I didn't expect yeah. it to sell as well as it did either. Everyone expected it to be a little niche thing that a few people would love. But instead, it's a bigger thing that a lot of people love. Yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised that you're telling me this, even though I'm kind of really shocked because I would think not a lot of people, especially nowadays in our culture, who can put that kind of investment of time and effort to get towards that payoff. And it's worth it. It's totally worth it. But you do have to work more than any other science fiction book I've read probably um, ever. You have to work the same amount in Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. Uh, in fact, it. my my aim was I'm not going to make the reader work as hard as Gene Wolfe in the Book of the New Sun. That was by bar. <laughs> and people who have read this book are now laughing because that bar is very high. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, I I it's it's asking a lot of the reader, and I've been delighted at our community and humanity in general that there are so many people who are delighted by putting in that work and getting that payoff and chewing on those ideas. Well, Ada, uh, where can people find more about you and your work, your books? So I've got a blog, exurbe.com, uh, where I blog very infrequently, but posts on philosophy and stuff. There's the one on progress there, which I recommend. Um, and I also have a my general website, adapalmer.com, which can point you at books. Uh, Tor is my publisher in the US and Head of Zeus is my publisher in the UK, which means a lot of European editions are the Head of Zeus edition. And there's also a French translation. Uh, the French translation was a ton of work and is a masterpiece. Uh, and there's now a Polish translation. And I don't know Pol Polish, so I don't know how good it is, but I know the translator worked really hard on that. This is not an easy book to translate. Um, so those are around. And um, my only nonfiction book right now is a uh, very technical academic book on uh, Lucretius and the Renaissance. But I worked with Cory Doctorow uh, recently to film a series of discussions about the history of censorship, which are, and specifically the impact of information revolutions on censorship. And those discussions, which have a lot of historians, so we're comparing digital revolution to print revolution, uh, and a lot of great people, people who work on the Inquisition, people who work on the history of hate speech, people who work on the history of copyright. Those are all up on YouTube and you can find the link to that YouTube through, I think both of my websites, but definitely through adapalmer.com. Um, but you can also get to it at voices.uchicago, that's the letter U, chicago.edu slash censorship, voices.uchicago.edu slash censorship, which will point you to those online videos and then there will be books related to the history of censorship work of mine coming in time so you can keep an eye out on social media and i tweet at ada palmer ada underscore palmer um 
So at Ada underscore promo. And right now I'm doing a hashtag called something beautiful. The goal of which is to just post beautiful things a bunch of times a day because Twitter is an invaluable news source in a crisis, but it's very emotionally destructive to go to your Twitter feed and have nothing but bad news and anger about the bad news and bad news and anger about the bad news. And so I and now a lot of people are tweeting under that hashtag to make sure that it's bad news, bad news, beautiful fountain, bad news, anger about bad news, bird, bad news, somebody's dog, um, bad news, here's an interesting historical reconstruction of a Viking ship. And that is much more psychologically bearable uh, and makes it easier to then use the news source as it needs to be used. So uh, you might want to look for me on Twitter and that hashtag if you want to increase the proportion of your Twitter feed that is a break from the news which we need, but which is damaging us and is part of that running at 75% problem. Well, I would contribute a little bit as a little sign of gratitude towards you sharing so much of your time today by tweeting a few something beautiful things to you as soon as we're done with this. Um, what would be, we spoke today for over two and a half hours. I think this is getting towards the, the, the records uh, of my long format interviews ever on this podcast. We may not have beaten the record, but we're surely getting very close to it and we may have even beaten it. Um, what's the most important message that you want our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today? Teamwork. Uh, and especially that the small things that we're achieving that feel small, those are the way the civilization-wide big things happen. Uh, the more I look at history and zoom in, the less it's the geniuses and the people whose names we know that made the world shift and the more it is, in fact, the microscopic, from a historical standpoint, teamwork of everybody. So never feel like the stuff you're doing isn't important, whether it's reading and talking about science fiction and contributing to the advancement of ethics by doing so, whether it's whatever job you're doing that contributes to the civilization flowing. The teamwork, you see it when you zoom back. Um, and it's working. We are here. You need to read the long form of the progress essay, but there's a lot of terrible stuff we've done since Bacon invented the idea of progress, since we started developing tech uh, intentionally. But 1600 to now isn't very long, right? It took 150 years for the first useful invention. It took until the 19th century for us to really understand that technology was hurting stuff. We only quite recently, just over a century, have realized that we have the ability to damage this planet. That's not very long. I know it seems like a long time, but it isn't. Uh, I don't think the fact that our technology is still accidentally hurting stuff will mean our technology will always accidentally hurt stuff. I think it means that we're still in the early phase in which we're learning how to make our technology hurt stuff less. And there are a thousand micro details where we have gotten better at that. And so I think we have an enormous amount of grounds for hope. We just have to realize we're living in the hard part in the middle. So you're a lot. No progress. 
it's just that the progress is more complicated and slower than old narratives lead us to believe. Mm -hmm. So you're a lot more charitable and patient and tolerant of humanity as a young species, and, and therefore you're optimistic that we would get our act together eventually? Yeah, I mean, when you look at multi-century timescale, one century starts to feel really small because it is. We're closer in time to Cleopatra than Cleopatra is to the founding of her dynasty. We haven't been doing modernity and technology and progress very long. We haven't been realizing that we have the power to hurt our planet and ourselves for very long at all. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of time and work to develop stuff that is that big. It doesn't mean we're not having any success. It just means that it's a task that we have to work our very best on and trust the next generation to continue. Because baking is right, right? We have a longer life expectancy. We did eradicate smallpox. We have gotten on top of polio. We do have refrigerators. A whole lot of stuff actually is better. And on the legal end, right? While our justice system isn't fair, it's not true that if you're doing a piece of art for the government, it means you can get away with murder every single time and everyone thinks that's normal. If you get away with murder, everyone will talk about it as an injustice. Like we've made those steps. Those steps are real. We should never think that we haven't achieved something hard because we haven't achieved the last bit, the hardest part is getting to the intellectual point of realizing that it should be changed. I remember the last time I was looking at some early documents, which were at, not that early, they were 1500s and late 1400s. Some of the very first articulations of the question, wait a minute, what if the aristocracy isn't just fundamentally biologically different from and superior to everyone else? What if all humans are fundamentally about the same and cognitively capable of the same stuff. It was so hard to get to that thought. It was so incredibly hard. It took so long. And if I can give one tiny historic anecdote, I know you're trying to wrap up, but this is a good one because this is the how, how cantaloupe caused the French Revolution, right? We even had biological evidence that aristocrats were different from lower classes because when you never eat a food your stomach stops producing the enzymes allows you to digest that food right so if you never eat the rich pork meat that and 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 all beef and so on meals that aristocrats have and then you eat your master's meal you get sick and if your master eats your meal he gets sick right so we couldn't even eat the same foods aristocrats and peasants were clearly different in the way that Horses and wolves were clearly different. We had to actually eat different food. To get to the point of doubting that is an immense revolution. I remember I was rereading these documents and seeing it appear, and I burst into tears because it's a miracle that we ever had the thought, wait, what if we're all actually equal? That's the hard part, right? Getting from that to electricity, that's the easy part. Having the thought in the first place is the miracle. And cantaloupe comes in because 
cantaloupe is round and sweet and golden and like the food nobility should be eating, like oranges and lemons from the tops of noble trees, but it grows on the ground and lies flat like a vine in Theophrastus and Aristotle. So they say this is impossible. And they got people to realize that the way they categorized food and the way they categorized plants and the way they categorized animals in a hierarchy was nonsense. And it wasn't true that trees were inherently ethically superior to bushes which were ethically superior to vines. If this great, sweet, round, solar, noble fruit could grow on a vine, wait a minute, if there isn't a hierarchy in plants, does that mean there isn't a hierarchy in people? Um, so it took weird disruptions. It took Lucretius. It took cantaloupe. Um, but we did it. And to, to get out of the thousands of years of proof that we had that aristocrats and peasants can never be the same, we did that. If we did that, we can do climate change. Wow, Ada Palmer. This is like the most mind-blowing end that I've had so far in my podcast, I think, and, and one of the most optimistic ones, if not the most optimistic one. Thank you so much for this conversation with you today. Thank you. This was great. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation. 